Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, February 14th. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues, Asa Winstanley, Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Tamara, Tamara Nassar. It's day 131 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have another packed show for you today, but first, some of the news that we've been covering at the Electronic Intifada. Rafah, located in southern Gaza along the border with Egypt, endured some of the deadliest hours of Israel's military offensive now in its fifth month, early on Monday morning. Our colleague Maureen Claire Murphy reports that Israel killed at least 68 Palestinians, including 19 children and 13 women, during some two hours of bombing, according to Al-Haq, Al-Mizan, and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. The following is from Maureen's report. More than 28,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed since October 7th, with thousands more missing under the rubble. An untold number of Palestinians have died from hunger and disease in a secondary wave of mortality resulting from Israel's military offensive and siege. The vast majority of of Gaza's population of 2.3 million people have been displaced, many of them repeatedly, and most are now sheltering in Rafah in inhumane conditions. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, has repeatedly threatened to expand the military offensive in Rafah in recent days, raising international alarm over the unprecedented bloodshed and mass expulsion that would all but surely entail. Israeli warplanes targeted at least 15 residential buildings, two mosques, agricultural lands, and areas close to the Egyptian-Palestinian border, according to the rights groups. Helicopters and gunboats were also involved in the attacks. 90 Palestinians, including 34 children, 18 women, and a journalist, were killed in Israeli airstrikes on Rafah in the first 10 days of February, the rights groups said. Sinai for Human Rights, an organization based in Egypt, said that on early Monday, Israel bombed areas along the Gaza-Egypt border fence, which Cairo has reinforced due to fears of a mass expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza. The three Palestinian human rights groups said that the people amassed on Gaza's border with Egypt had fled to the area, quote, at the command of the Israeli military on the instruction that Rafah was a designated safe zone. The groups added that the intensified targeting of Rafah comes as the Israeli military continues to empty out Gaza City and forcibly displace its residents southward toward Deir Abalah and Khan Yunus. Forcing Palestinians south to Rafah and then announcing the displacement of people in that area, quote, whether internally into smaller pockets of Gaza or into Egypt with no basic necessities for survival, is further evidence of Israel's genocidal intent, according to the human rights groups. An unnamed senior Israeli military official told, told Axios that it had pounded Rafah early Monday as a diversion while its forces freed two Israeli-Argentine men held in Gaza after being captured during Hamas's October 7th raid. Of the more than 240 Israelis and foreign nationals who were captured on October 7th, Around 130 remain in Gaza after around 100 were freed in a prisoner exchange during a week-long truce in late November. On Sunday, the Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of Hamas, announced that two captives were killed and eight were seriously injured in Israeli strikes during the preceding days. 
The Israeli military said early last week that 31 of the remaining captives in Gaza had been declared dead and their families notified. That was from Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, Removal of Palestinians in Rafah, a Genocidal Act, on electronicintifada.net. On Tuesday, Israeli snipers killed at least seven Palestinians and injured 14 medics and displaced persons inside the courtyard of the Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry's spokesperson, occupation forces demolished the northern gate of the hospital complex while soldiers ordered patients and staff inside the hospital to evacuate. In a particularly dystopian scene, an Israeli quadcopter drone was filmed hovering above displaced people as Israeli forces ordered those in and around the complex to leave. The health ministry said that schools surrounding Nasser Medical Complex were targeted and caught fire, and fire spread to a nearby medical equipment warehouse. Sewage water flooded the emergency department inside the hospital, and hospital administrators said they were not able to transfer any dead bodies to the mortuary due to the extreme danger, according to the health ministry. A doctor at Nasser Hospital told the Electronic Intifada on Tuesday that, quote, the Nasser Medical Complex was besieged from all sides and military mechanisms destroyed the northern gate of the complex. Snipers target anyone moving inside the complex and there are martyrs lying on the ground and no one can reach them. The fourth floor of the surgical operations department is targeted by snipers. All medical staff are trapped with patients inside. All medical warehouses were burned. Say to the world what happened here. End quote. Another doctor, Khaled Alser, sent me this voice message later in the day yesterday. Uh, last two hours, uh, I have operated on two patients. Uh, both of them are civilians uh, considered as a refugee inside the hospital who tried to go outside the hospital according to uh, uh, Israeli army instructions. Unfortunately, they, they have been shot, multiple injuries, multiple bullets inside their bodies. That was Dr. Khaled Al-Ser, who sent me a voice message yesterday from Al-Nasser Hospital. Maureen Claire Murphy reports that Ahmad Al-Mugrabi, the head of the Burns Department, said that Israeli troops sent a Palestinian detainee wearing personal protective equipment and his hands cuffed into Nasser Medical Complex to deliver the military's order to evacuate on Tuesday. When he returned to the troops as they had ordered, they executed the young man. This morning, Maureen reports that thousands of people evacuated the facility under Israeli order. The Palestinian health ministry in Gaza said that, quote, thousands of displaced people, the families of medical staff and patients who cannot move, were forcibly evacuated. Quote, they are threatened with extreme danger, according to Ashraf Al-Kedra, the ministry's spokesperson. Videos show people streaming out of the hospital and evacuees masked at a checkpoint. 
For more, read Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, Israel Lays Siege to Gaza Hospital as Rafah Stares Death in the Face on electronicintifada.net. On February 9th, a video went viral showing physician Amira al-Asuli courageously rescuing an injured patient who was stranded near Nasser Hospital. Israeli snipers and armed quadcopters shot at anybody who moved in the area. Al-Asuli told Al Jazeera afterwards that, quote, our message to the world is this. Since graduation, we swore the doctor's oath and to take on the duty to help any human in need of medical help. I know that for quite some time they were trying to rescue that man, but they were afraid because of a quadcopter. The snipers were directly shooting at him and at us directly. Meanwhile, Israel is starving Gaza. According to the BBC, children, quote, are going without food for days as aid convoys are increasingly denied permits to enter. The United Nations estimates that nearly one in every 10 Palestinian children in Gaza under five years old are now acutely malnourished. A recent report by the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, or IPC, says that between December 8th and February 7th, the entire population of the Gaza Strip, approximately 2.3 million people, has been classified as in crisis or worse. Quote, this is the highest share of people facing high levels of acute food insecurity that the IPC initiative has ever classified for any given area or country, the IPC states. Moreover, the IPC says that about half of the population are in a food emergency and, quote, at least one in four households or more than half a million people face catastrophic conditions characterized by an extreme lack of food, starvation and exhaustion of coping capacities. Citing financial restrictions against UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, the Israeli government is holding up more than 1,000 shipping containers of vital food items at the Ashdod port, just 20 miles north of the Gaza boundary. The shipments, which contain rice, flour, chickpeas, sugar, and cooking oil, are enough to feed more than 1 million people for one month. Bezalel Smotrich, Israel's finance minister, has admitted that he blocked the shipments in coordination with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Axios reported on Tuesday that Smotrich, quote, blocked the transfer of the flour after he was notified that it was destined for UNRWA, the primary aid group in Gaza. Quote, he ordered the Israeli Customs Service not to release the shipment as long as UNRWA is the recipient, Axios added. Last week, Israeli naval forces attacked a food aid convoy that was reportedly heading to northern Gaza. Philippe Lazzarini, the head of UNRWA, stated last week that half of the agency's humanitarian aid mission requests to areas in northern Gaza were, den were denied since the beginning of the year. The UN, he said, has identified deep pockets of starvation and hunger in northern Gaza where people are believed to be on the verge of famine. At least 300,000 people living in the area depend on our assistance for their survival. For much more, read my report, Israel Engineers Deep Pockets of Starvation Across Gaza on electronicintifada.net. And finally, finding clean air in Gaza has become nearly impossible writes Khalud Rabah Suleiman and Salma Yassin reporting from Gaza. 
quote, parents are worried that toxic substances emitted by Israel's weapons are causing an increase in respiratory complaints among children, they write. Quote, as well as the pollution caused by Israel's weapons, the air in Gaza has been fouled by the widespread burning of wood and other material. With electricity and fuel scarce, people have had no choice than to light fires so that they can have a little warmth and cook the small amount of food still available. Read more from Khalud Rabah Suleiman and Salma Yassin's article, A Toxic War, on electronicintifada.net. And those are just some of the many stories we've published on the Electronic Intifada over the last few days. Head over to electronicintifada.net for much more. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima and Asa Wynn-Stanley. Asa, tell us about our first guest. Well, welcome everybody. We're joined today by David Miller, a writer and broadcaster. David Miller is one of the world's leading academic experts in Islamophobia, propaganda, and the pro-Israel lobby. In October 2021, after a decade-long smear campaign against him by that same lobby, he was fired from his job as a professor of sociology by the University of Bristol. And But now, more than three years on, an employment tribunal in Britain has ruled that his sacking was unlawful and violated his protected philosophical beliefs under British equality legislation, namely his opposition to Zionism, the Israeli state's racist foundational ideology. David, welcome back to the EI podcast, first time on the live stream. Thank you very much, Issa. Good to see you all. Yeah, great to be uh, great to be having another conversation with you. Well, first of all, congratulations on this uh, hard-fought legal victory. Uh, we've got a short video clip here, which I would like to play. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. That is, I'm so happy with that welcome. It's well deserved. And David, as you guys know, thank you, Tamara. That was uh, a recent speaking event that you uh, <laughs> spoke at in Bristol uh, at the Markham X Centre. Is that right? On Sunday, just there. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it was great to see that. Just um, people celebrating your legal win, and, and you know, this has been a hard-fought victory. Uh, you know, and it's taken a lot. Of fortitude really to get here um but tell us about the implications of this uh of this victory and how it if it does set a legal precedent for others well it's a it's a tremendous victory for me personally so i it, the court determined that i was wrongly dismissed that the university hadn't properly investigated the claims against me hadn't investigated or taken on board the evidence i supplied they hadn't properly evaluated that evidence and uh, therefore that I was wrongly dismissed. But the the more significant part of the, the win is that uh, the court determined that the reason I was sacked was not because I had upset some students, which is what the university said, but because of my anti-Zionist views. The, the university's witnesses in the end conceded that point uh, in cross-examination. If I, if I hadn't been an anti-Zionist, then the rest of the comments that I made, they said, wouldn't have let... Re- uh, a reg- sort of wouldn't have ended in me being sacked. So it was clear that they themselves conceded that point, and that's what led to the 
court uh, issuing the judgment that I had been sacked because of my anti-Zionist views. And, and this is the most important point, that anti-Zionist views were, to use the language from the Equality Act 2010, worthy of respect in a democratic society. And that's the legal test for whether uh, views should be protected in law. So it's now the case that you cannot discriminate against someone, you cannot sack someone or discipline someone for having anti-Zionist views, no matter how horrific you might or Zionists might think those views are. And that, of course, is a tremendous legal precedent for for anyone in any kind of job in the UK. But also, it drives a, a coach and horses all the way through the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which, of course, is the Zionist entity's main uh, weapon of choice for for beating the uh, and bashing the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Because, of course, if you recall, as I'm sure you do, Asa, um, there's one of the examples in there in the IHRA which says that it's uh, potentially anti-Semitic to say that Israel is a racist endeavour. Now we can all say, yes, Israel's a racist endeavour, always was, always will be. Uh, and no one can say that's racist. The courts have declared that that is not mm. a racist statement, as we all knew. But nevertheless, this is not something which the Zionist movement wants to hear. And that's why they're a little bit cross about it. Yeah, David. I saw the, the the Jewish Chronicles front page this last weekend. They were uh, not very happy about it, to say the least. The Jewish Chronicle being uh, an extremely uh, pro-Israel newspaper in Britain, weekly newspaper, right-wing newspaper. David, uh, if I, I can add my congratulations to you. Uh, you, uh, I mean, just to recall... You before you were fired, which I think was in October of 2021, so three years ago, or is that two years ago? More than two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, time is doing strange things with our minds these days. Uh, prior to that, there'd been a whole uh, big smear campaign against you. Asa mentioned it been going on for years, but it was particularly intense at that time. And it involved the national and international media. And it was really driven by Israel lobby groups and particular individuals who ginned up this whole, if I may say, fake story that you were making Jewish students on campus feel unsafe uh, with whatever comments they said you made or, or, or statements you made. And as we reported in November of 2021, the university actually, and this is Bristol University, your employer, actually commissioned two independent investigations, and both of them concluded that the charges of anti-Semitism against you were completely unfounded. But despite that, they went on and fired you based on completely bogus reasons, uh, notably, they, they didn't claim that they fired you for anti-Semitism, but as you said, the tribunal found that the, the real reason was your anti-Zionist views. Now, that's just a, a way to, to get to, to the question I want to put to you. For the past few years, you've insisted, and we've all insisted, that because Zionism is a political ideology, it's not a religion, it's not a personal identity. It's not an ethnicity. It is a political ideology. 
that holds that Palestinians can and must be forcibly removed from their homeland so that Jewish settlers from all over the world can take their place. So it's optional. You know, your ethnicity, your race is not optional. But supporting this racist ideology is optional. And therefore, we have a right to criticize it. But so there's been this effort by putting these students up to say, oh, David Miller hurt my feelings, to turn Zionism into a sort of identity like religion or like race, so that if you offend a Zionist, you're discriminating against them. What does this ruling do to that campaign on British and American campuses to try to convince people that Zionism is a, a, an identity that we have to respect and protect? Well, it, it, it fatally undermines it. I mean, at the level of, of employment law in the UK, uh, you can now no longer say, you know, this, this person's been racist against me because he's criticised Israel. It's no longer going to be available as a as the kind of uh, strategy of choice which the Zionists can use. It's not going to stop them necessarily, but it's it's going to be clear that, that there's a distinction to be made between anti-Zionism, obviously, and, uh, and uh, anti-Semitism or racism. But I think also it's going to have a, a knock-on effect more widely. I mean, the universities are going to have to decide uh, what they do now, because they, the, the UK courts have declared that uh, effectively the IHRA uh, is not uh, on all fours with, with the law. And that's going to be very difficult. That's going to have to work its way through. And that working its way through will have implications, not just at the national level in the UK, but internationally as well in the US and indeed in, in uh, everywhere else that the IHRA has been used as a weapon. So I, I'm, I'm very optimistic that this is the beginning of the end of the IHRA, actually. And of course, there's been some pushback against it before. Some universities have voted to reject it. But this really is a, a declaration in a court which can't really be uh, um, countermanded. I mean, it's not really available to be countermanded. It's clear that, that anti-Zionism is a protected belief and is separate from anti-Semitism. And I can't see any way in which the the courts can declare that's not the case. Uh, there's never been an example of protected beliefs being overturned uh, like that in the court. So uh, that that's a, a really positive uh, outcome. And this is as people have been saying, this is a victory for for all of us. And it's a, it's something which will then be there to protect all of us uh, who are faced with incessant lies that are the Zionists like to spout. And just a reminder for our viewers and listeners, the IHRA is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Jewish bigotry. And in its, um, you know, in, in its explanation of what is anti-Semitism, uh, I believe seven out of the 11 examples that they give are criticisms of, of Israel and its state policies. Um, so it is, it is really a weapon to silence critics of Israeli policy and of the Zionist political ideology. And, yeah, and, and, the, yeah, and yeah. The, the definition has its roots with the Mossad. I mean, this That's is right. what yeah. people yeah. forget. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, it was a Mossad-funded so-called research at the uh, uh, in Israel that led to the IHRA definition. We, we actually have an article about that from uh, a few months ago at the Electronic Intifada. But I also say the IHRA, this so-called International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which has this very s somber and serious sounding name, is just an Israel lobby group. Yeah. And yeah. it's made and up. It's not international. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. members are 
Israel, the government of Israel, and Israel's closest friends in the world, so the right. United States and the EU. And there's been this big effort to push this so-called definition to formalize it and adopt it in universities across the UK, across the United States, and in the rest of the uh, European and settler colonial world. And so this, this, as David said, is really a setback to that effort. Yeah. Um, well, uh, another next question for you, uh, David, just to put this to you. Um, what are the responses I've seen from the Zionists uh, to your legal victory? I mean, apart from general outrage, I mean, and I believe this was in the, the Jewish Chronicle, was um, I, I, I think it was uh, John Mann, who, you know, is this... Uh, He's a pro-Israel campaigner. Let's just put it like that for now. Um, he his response was, "Well, this is outrageous. This should be overturned." But also, he was trying to argue that it could go both ways, and he said that, "Well, if uh, anti-Zionism is a protected characteristic, then therefore so is so is Zionism." So, is that the case in law? And uh, what would your response be to those kind of uh, arguments? Uh, it's not the case in law just yet. Um, it could be established in law, um, and this is what, for example, the the uh, silver lining, as the UK lawyers for Israel put it, is that they think that they can now establish Zionism as a protected belief. That remains to be seen, uh, and of course it would depend very on the, the case that they brought and what kind of Zionism they wanted to define and how the court thought about it. So that there are questions about that. It's not clear to me how it uh, helps them much since Zionism is already protected <laughs> throughout <laughs> our society because of the way in which our societies yeah. operate. But I think there's another question about, about this, which is that John Mann, uh, uh, in the, um, uh, he was in the Jewish Chronicle, I think, at the, at the weekend, as you were saying, is uh, um, talking about the how this decision needed to be reversed uh, and that Parliament should be looking at this. So uh, essentially, John Mann is saying that that he disagrees with the decision of the courts so much that he thinks that we should abolish the separation of powers uh, and effectively introduce fascism just in order to reverse the decision in my case. Now, of course, that's a, a ludicrous way of, of seeing things, but it's, it's not um, unrealistic that the government will start to do stuff in this area. Already we've had Kemi Badenoch, uh, one of the, the government ministers, talking about this in a a way which is which is fairly ludicrous but let's remind ourselves that it wasn't just uh, as one of you said uh, israel lobby groups which were uh, attacking me and there were a laundry list of israel lobby groups which most people uh, couldn't name if they were asked because there were so many of them but there was also people from the from from parliament more than 100 members of the house of lords and the house of commons wrote a letter asking for me to be sacked and there were debates in parliament there were uh, questions in the house, uh, etc. I was denounced as being, uh, I think, uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, denounced me as being peculiarly wicked uh, for the comments that, that I had made. So there was a huge campaign <laughs> against me, which of course was whipped up by the by the lobby and by the Zionist movement. Uh, and, and of course, they will try and continue with this as they're trying to continue with the, uh, introducing a, a, bit, a bill against BDS. Uh, and as they, of course, they're trying to outlaw the, the waving of the Palestinian flag or the use of the slogan from the river to the sea. And we just saw yesterday in, in the UK, um, 
which I, I guess you will have seen in the news, that these three young women, one of whom is Palestinian from Gaza, convicted of a, a crime of terrorism for having on their backs during a demonstration uh, in October, November last year, the image of a parachute. And now there's obviously an attempt to clamp down and to make it impossible to, to vocalize pro-Palestinian sentiment. But at the same time, of course, as, as all of us know, the whole world sees what's happening in Gaza. The whole world sees the endless procession of babies and children dragged from rubble and, and everyone sees that uh, that uh, Zionism is a genocidal ideology and so that that attempt to 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 crack down is is foundering on the fact that the whole world supports Palestine with the exception of course of the countries in the west and uh, meaning their leaders but the whole of public opinion supports Palestine and that's a really difficult thing for them to manage just to give one example of that you know let's remember that uh, Elon Musk who is now uh, descending into the arms of the Zionists at a, a, a rate of knots. Remember, he said, look, that, that when he came back from from seeing the uh, from Kibbutz Beeri, uh, seeing the uh, the, the uh, stuff that the Israelis showed him, he said, "From the river to the sea is genocidal, and we will not have it on the platform." Well, has anybody been stopped from being on X as a result of using that? No, of course not, because they can't, because the whole world is using the slogan, because the whole world supports Palestine. So. It's a real dilemma for them in that they're trying to clamp down, but it's not working. Yeah, they're sort of almost shutting down. We're starting to see this process of Western society shutting down Western governments, shutting down their own uh, systems that, you know, potentially democratic systems, but internal systems purely to defend Israel and Zionism. And this is these yeah. are contradictions that are being really heightened across the world during this genocide. David, the attack on you and your defense uh, is a very is is we hope a very significant turning point for free speech and academic freedom, and a real blow against the thuggery of the Israel lobby, a lobby you've done so much to expose in your both your academic and journalistic work. But as we know, you are not alone in being under attack for your academic work. And all over the UK, Europe, um, particularly Germany, in the United States, in Canada, we hear story after story of acad young academics, and not, not always young academics, uh, sometimes quite established academics, and particularly Palestinian academics, uh, come under attack just for being Palestinian or for speaking out uh, in support of Palestinian rights, or even for uh, very legitimate academic research. We've seen uh, now almost 10 years ago, Stephen Salaita was subjected to a similar smear campaign, and he was fired by the University of Illinois. And he's not alone either. So my question for you is, as an academic and someone who's been through this, what advice do you have for your fellow academics uh, who may face this kind of smear campaign? How 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 do you how how do we stand up to it? Well, I think the key thing, and I don't think this applies just to academics, but it, it does apply to academics too. The key thing is to adopt a strategy of uh, of attack of not apologizing of not i mean the, the key difference between what i did 
and what many of the people in the Labour Party did uh, uh, in the UK when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge. The strategy then was to apologise. Say, I'm terribly sorry, I've hurt your feelings, I didn't mean it. Maybe we can have a chat, maybe we can make things right. But that is, that's a losing strategy, and that's what lost Jeremy Corbyn, the leadership of the Labour Party, as, of course, Asa shows in his fantastic book on the topic. My strategy was to say, we do, we do not compromise with the Zionists because we cannot. This is a racist ideology, and it simply has to be defeated. And that is, seems to me, to, it has to be the first uh, um, point of any response to these kinds of criticisms. <clears throat> the second uh, point, therefore, uh, if you're going to, to do that, is to, is to say you have to get support. Uh, and I've had uh, tremendous legal support in court, and uh, those of you who followed what, what happened in court uh, and the, the amazing theatre of the cross-examination will we'll already know that. But what I would say is that, you, that there, are, there are ways and means to support yourself. Make sure you get legal advice. Quite often, comrades don't think to get proper legal advice and they, they lay themselves open. I'm not sure that those three women, those poor women, who two of whom handed themselves in, who were found guilty just yesterday of terrorism charges, I'm not sure they had the most uh, politically adept counsel. I wouldn't want to, to you know, say anything bad about their lawyers, but you have to have decent lawyers who understand the politics. Uh, and you also have to have support. Now, of course, there are organizations that can support you in the US, Palestine Legal, and uh, in Europe, there's the European Legal Center. In the UK, I, I've been supported by an organization called the Left Legal Fighting Fund, which was created by Chris Williamson, uh, the former MP, when he won a case against the Labour Party, and he put all the money, the damages, into starting that organization. I'm a director of the company as well. And we, so we've used that to try and help and defend individuals, people who've got uh, issues like those women who've been convicted yesterday, uh, problems with the police uh, or problems at their work, they can come to the Left Legal Fighting Fund, it's fightingfund.org, and we may be able to help you and, and defend you. In my case, my, my legal fees all the way through this process amount to over £100,000. I mean, that really is a, a staggering sum of money. I could never have, uh, um, obviously, <laughs> having been put out of work, never have paid that. And, and we managed to pay. We haven't paid all of it yet. We've got £30,000 roughly outstanding, but we've paid a huge amount of it. And I've been kind of overwhelmed and inundated with support with that in the last 14 days. We've had 500 small donations from people which have really pushed up the total of, of, of money that we've got. So I would say get help. There are organisations that can help you. We can run crowdfunders. You run them in secure processes where, where the science can't cancel them. And all of that, that knowledge and skill of how to do that now exists in, in, in the EU, in the UK and in the US. And I would really recommend that people do have proper legal and political support. And that's what I would say. Yeah, sound advice. Well, a final question. Um, it's kind of a big question, but maybe you could talk about it a little bit. The last time you came on the EI podcast, I think was um, shortly after your firing in 2021. And uh, I recommend this to go back and uh, watch this to all our listeners and viewers. Um, if you haven't seen it or heard it already, I think it was a really insightful conversation. Um, there's a full transcript actually on that page as well. Um, and in that conversation, you emphasized the necessity of dismantling the ideology of Zionism. And you said, quote, the same way as we would talk about dismantling racism, racism is not just a set of ideas, it has material forms and practices. If you want to dismantle and eradicate Zionism, you have to dismantle the apparatus which puts it in place. Um, 
could you talk about the material role that you think we've seen the Zionist movement in Britain play in the genocide in Gaza that we've seen since the 7th of October in regard to that? I mean, I suppose one maybe very small example is uh, <laughs> is Sabrina Miller, the woman who really uh, kicked off your the witch hunt against you really at Bristol University. She was kind of... Uh, she was kind of the cat's paw for the Israel lobby in a way. Um, and, you know, she wasn't your, <laughs> she wasn't even your student. Um, but uh, she really, there was, there was lots of others on, there was lots of others who campaigned against you, but um, she was one of the more vocal ones. Um, and today, I mean, that really kicked off her career. And today she has a successful career writing for the right wing media and was even astonishingly, give, astonishingly given the job of reporting on your legal victory for the Daily Mail, um, <laughs> and she didn't disclose any of this. With no disclosure of the role she played, posing as, uh, and I, I want to come back to this, posing as a poor, vulnerable, uh, you know, young woman who was so deeply hurt by, uh, you know, all the awful things that David Miller supposedly said. And and I just think it's so important to highlight that this is the strategy of putting students or alleged students, because she wasn't, she may have been a student at Bristol, but she wasn't your student, David, um, putting young people forward on campuses and saying, oh, look, look how their feelings are being hurt by all these awful things you're saying about Israel. But as Asa says, she went on to work for one of the most racist, Islamophobic, right-wing uh, media outlets on the planet, the Daily Mail, uh, and, you know, is, has been utterly ruthless. There is nothing emotionally vulnerable about her. She is a ruthless agent of anti-Palestinian propaganda. Maybe you won't say, yes. maybe, I don't know, yeah, but th that, that's my view. I speak for myself. <laughs> Oh yeah, look, I mean, the, the, it, it, that's a very big question, as you said, and really we need uh, another whole episode of a podcast in order to, to deal with this properly. But let me, let me deal with it in in summary terms, I'll, I'll maybe say, give a structural understanding and then give an example. So it seems to me that, that, that when um, Mia Scheinman and Walt wrote their famous book, The Israel Lobby, in whenever it was, 2005 or six or whatever it was, what they think of as the Israel lobby, and actually what most people think of as the Israel lobby, are the Israel lobby groups who are engaged in trying to influence policy. So in, in the US, APAC, uh, in the UK, BICOM or the Conservative Friends of Israel or the Labour Friends of Israel, uh, etc. Now, of course, they are the Israel lobby, and there's many more groups uh, that are also part of that. In Misha and Walt's book, they talk about the, uh, the neocon and uh, Zionist think tanks, the DD, the WNEP, et cetera, et cetera. JINSA, there's another one. And of course, you can th think of the same thing here, the policy exchange, the Henry Jackson Society, that's the Israel lobby. But then there's the Zionist movement, which is a much, much broader thing, uh, including huge numbers of organizations. In, in, uh, in, in the US, for example, if you look at the lobbying disclosure, disclosure um, uh, register, you see that APAC spent last year or the year before 2.7 million pounds, dollars, sorry, uh, and people say, you know, the Zionists say, oh, shows that the Israel lobby is not very important. The National Association of Realtors spent way more. But then if you look at the, the data compiled for that book, Big Israel, uh, which is uh, all held on the, the israellobby.org archive, they've done a compilation, which is not even the full uh, 
the full magnitude of the Zionist lobby. And it shows that in 2020, uh, the uh, budget of the Israel lobby uh, was 6.3 billion for, for that one year. So that's a little bit more than $3 million. But the other thing to say about that is that that's not the full extent of the influence of Zionism in our societies. Now, there's two other ways of looking at this, it seems to be. One is the, the, the way in which Zionists are lodged throughout the power structure of the society, not just in, in lobby groups, but in, in, in Whitehall, Westminster, or, or in the State Department, or in the Department of Defense in the US. Uh, and um, in, in, which, and they're, they're lodged at a level which is far in excess of, for example, the the level of the pop in the population of Jews in the US, which is around three percent, or in the UK, which is around 0.5 percent. That's another key way in which Zionism has an influence. It's, it's there the embeddedness of Zionists at the top levels in journalism, in politics, in in, in policy making. And there's a fourth way in which the Zionists have an influence, which is in, is through corporations. Uh, and uh, at the meeting I was at on Sunday, uh, uh, the, the, rap, the rapper Loki. Was there talking about his research, uh, especially on companies like Oracle and a whole slew of of, uh, of Israeli um, tech companies, most of which have got senior people from Unit 8200, which of course is the Signals Intelligence Unit of the Israeli military. And that's another way in which the the the, the Israeli state is able to penetrate uh, um, the, the politics of the UK or the US. The example he used at the end there was the question of Oracle, run by this guy called Larry Ellison, who lent a, a million, sorry, a billion dollars to Elon to, to uh, buy Twitter. And they have this massive billion dollar contract, more than more than a billion dollar contract, to manage all the cloud services of the Ministry of Defense, the National Health Service, and the Foreign Office in this country. Now that's a real national security risk and threat, but it, it's a way in which the designers are able to penetrate the most secret parts of the British state. And now people don't understand really the full range of, of ways in which the Zionists are able to to uh, influence and inf uh, uh, infiltrate. And that's the structural th question I would give you. Now, let, let me give you one example of how this all works out in terms of the, the genocide. So uh, I've been doing stuff recently on the show that I produce and uh, appear on called Palestine Declassified, uh, which has looked at, um, for example, the the uh, there's two um, charities, British charities, one called Beit Halachim, and the other one's called the UK Friends of the Association for the Wellbeing of Israel Soldiers, which is the UK wing of an organization which in the states is called friends of the idf now they send millions of pounds uh, every year to the idf to to for mobile synagogues and gyms and new swimming pools and they have a festival with thirty thousand idf recruits at it every year uh you know to, to welcome it's a music festival to welcome your recruits including those lone soldiers who come from the us or south africa or the uk or whatever to join the genocidal forces this is a, a a massive subvention for the genocide uh, and uh, so the, the, there are organizations here that are doing that and they are regulated in the uk by charity law which is supposed to show public benefit and that if there's there if there are harms which come from their conduct the harms must not outweigh the benefits so you, yeah. th there's a real uh, uh sense in this, that of the importance of looking at the way in which zionism operates in the uk and in the us and in, in other countries because it's it's a, it's a key pillar of supporting the ongoing genocide, and we can take action against those organizations here. And I'll give you one example of how we could take action. The, the guy who runs Beit Halochem is a guy called Andrew Wolfson from the famous philanthropic family, the Wolfson family, uh, uh, known for generations for their philanthropic work and their 
funding of Wolfson College Cambridge and Wolfson College Oxford, but also uh, for multi-generations, they've been supplying money for the, the uh, ethnic cleansing in Palestine, and they, they continue to do it to very many organisations, including, uh, yes, the IDF, but also directly to settlements and to Jewish supremacist groups and all sorts of other things. So there's a real sense of the importance of understanding not just Zionism in Occupy Palestine, but the way in which Zionism in this country uh, helps to, to uh, facilitate and promote uh, the genocide and helps to keep and insulate it from, from criticism. And we, we should be taking action directly against that uh, in each country that we live in. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, it's, as you said, it's a huge question and um, we should have a whole podcast on it um, and maybe we can get you back on soon to talk about some more of those things. We really appreciate your time, David. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, you can follow David on X, formerly Twitter, at tracking underscore power and watch his show Palestine Declassified on Press TV. It's a great show. I've been on it. Uh, have you got anything else to plug? No, no, <laughs> that, that's all for the show. I mean, where, I think the, where, the key uh, thing is to say, um, yeah, I still have legal fees outstanding. So if, if people can, yeah. then, then any contribution is welcome at fightingfund.org. Great. All right. Thank you very much, David. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream. Sinn Féin has long been vocal in its support for the Palestinian people, but during this genocide, Palestinian and Irish activists have expressed growing dismay at how the political party has dragged its feet. First, Sinn Féin resisted calls to expel the Israeli ambassador from Dublin, and now it is refusing to heed demands that the party leaders boycott St. Patrick's Day festivities with President Joe Biden. Farah Kotaini has been a leading Palestinian voice in Ireland, pressing Sinn Féin and other politicians to stay away from the White House next month. She was recently thrown out of a Sinn Féin meeting in Belfast after she interrupted a speech by the Palestinian Authority representative in Ireland and called for the party to heed the boycott calls. Farah is founder of Key 48, a voluntary collective calling for the immediate right of return of over 7.4 million Palestinian refugees. She joins us to talk about the debate in Ireland. And we're also joined by our very own colleague, David Cronin, one of whose recent articles is titled, Ireland Must Disown Genocide Joe. Dave and Farah, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Farah, uh, let's start with you. Talk about uh, the action that you took um, in, in protest of uh, Sinn Féin's uh, support of Genocide Joe, as, as we uh, um, come to know. I think we actually have the clip, so we ah, could maybe start great. by showing some yeah. of that. Sorry to interrupt you, Janan, and to interrupt you being a mouthpiece for the Palestinian Authority. They are a corrupt dictatorship who have not had an election since 2006. They intimidate... We're Palestinians! We're Palestinians! We're Palestinians! He's from Gaza! His family are from Gaza! Please listen to us. We've listened to you all night. Please... We're all from Palestine. We're all Palestinian. I'm Palestinian. He's got family in Gaza right now. Please listen to us. Boycott the White House. Boycott the White House. Do not go to Patrick's Day. Boycott the White House. Boycott the White House. Don't touch me. 
Farah, uh, thank you for taking that stand. Uh, talk a little bit about why you did it and um, and and what has happened since. Um, so, so last Wednesday was was the day the event took place. Um, it was very, it wasn't very well advertised. It was kind of advertised on the down low, um, obviously to prevent people um, like me who um, are very uh, disappointed in Sinn Fein's um, complicity in this genocide by not taking. Um, a very clear stance on on condemning Israel. Um, so the the event itself wasn't very well advertised. Um, we we a few group like it was a group of us actually. It was a group of Palestinians based in in Belfast in the north of Ireland. Um, we found out that not only was Sinn Fein holding a quote unquote solidarity rally um, in a luxury hotel um, in a room with chandeliers, um, that not only was Sinn Fein holding this solidarity rally, um, but also it was hosting. Um, a Palestinian Authority ambassador, the um, the PA ambassador to Ireland, um, and we felt very concerned um, that Sinn Fein was exploiting um, was exploiting that to essentially use Shalane um, to use the ambassador as a token Palestinian to justify them going to the White House. Um, so we mobilized and, and we disrupted um, the the end of the event. We wanted to see um, kind of what they were what the talking points were, and at several different points, um, different elected officials from uh, from especially Declan Kearney, elected MLA in the north, um, he had actually uh, mentioned going to the White House, um, and the reason they're going to the White House was to call for a ceasefire. Um, so we kind of wanted to sit and listen um, to to what they what they all had to say, and then um, we felt the need to to amplify our voices. Um, and we literally only spoke for about ten seconds. We didn't really get to to speak, um, and then we were swiftly manhandled by security, thrown out. All of us were, were Palestinians. Um, and some of us were also Palestinians from Gaza. Uh, I was standing alongside someone who had lost their father um, just two weeks ago in Gaza, um, and we had bottles thrown at us by Sinn Féin supporters. Um, Mr. Walsh, who was sitting in the front, uh, former Sinn Féin um, or current Sinn Féin councillor, uh, shared a cell with Bobby Sands, was one of the first to stand up um, and to tell us to, to leave, um, tell us to have our own event. Um, he shared a cell with Bobby Sands. Um, it, it's, it's quite um, it was it was quite an unbelievable experience, um, and we expected some form of apology from 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 Sinn Fein, but we haven't received any apology. Um, instead, the very next day after we were thrown out of the event, um, Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill went to go pay another P PA ambassador a visit, Hassam Zomla in London, um, for another photo op um, to kind of guarantee their their token Palestinians to justify them going to the White House. And, and Mary Lou McDonald is the president of Sinn Féin and Michelle O'Neill is the, 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 her deputy who is also the newly uh, installed first minister in um, Northern Ireland. Farah, I also uh, on, on my social media have called for Sinn Féin leaders to stay away from the White House uh, at the uh, upcoming St. Patrick's Day celebration, which is a big annual bash when all the Irish politicians go to the White House. And um, at least one party, the SDLP, uh, their leader, Colm Eastwood, has said he would stay away and that he couldn't stomach 
going to the White House. But some of the reactions I've gotten from a few uh, people, uh, I've had a lot of support for my position, as have you. But I've, I have had some criticism, and people have said, well, Sinn Féin is one of the strongest and most vocal supporters for the Palestinian people over the years. So aren't you being unfair to them by uh, making this demand when they've been uh, some of the, the most vocal critics of Israel over the year? I, I'm just curious how you respond to that. Um, I, I don't think it's asking too much at all. I think it's actually quite preposterous that in the time of a genocide, you would go to celebrate any holiday, let it be St. Patrick's, Christmas, or whatever holiday it may be. We saw in Bethlehem um, in the in the church of nativity, um, they, they were obviously not celebrating Christmas for obvious reasons. And I don't think it's a big demand um, to, to ask Sinn Féin to, to boycott um, St. Patrick's Day at the White House. Um, and also, uh, in addition to that as well, um, this is kind of one of the sole opportunities to really um, amplify kind of Irish dissent on this. Um, the annual celebrations of, of St. Patrick's Day would send a clearer message than physically being there and, and asking for a ceasefire in person. I want to bring uh, our colleague Dave in as well. Um, Dave, what can you say about the role of Sinn Féin and, uh, you know, right now in, in terms of, of its, you know, what Farah was just saying about its uh, support of Genocide Joe? Um, how can you assess the current kind of political uh, state of things right now um, in Ireland? Well, I think it's very depressing that somebody like Shiana Walsh, who Farah has just mentioned, the the, the man who was, who was sitting in the front row was a Sinn Féin councillor, was the first person, as Farah has said, to stand up and say, I think his precise words were, go and have your own event. Shiana Walsh runs or has been involved in running a centre in Belfast dedicated to James Connolly, who was a revered figure in Irish history. James Connolly was a famous socialist, a famous internationalist. He took part in the 1916 and was executed for his role in the 1916 Easter Rising in Dublin. I can't imagine that James Connolly would have turned around to a Palestinian and say, go and have your own event. Sinn Féin's position, unfortunately, has weakened considerably. A few days ago, I did a little bit, bit of digging on the Sinn Féin website. I looked up back issues of On Fublacht, the weekly newspaper that Sinn Féin publishes. I found a, a fascinating article from 1998 in which Sinn Féin offered a devastating critique of the Oslo Accords, which were signed a few years earlier between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization. The article on Afoblak complained that Palestinians were being told that they have to make do with, quote unquote, occasional scraps. Why can't Sinn Féin boycott the White House? What would it lose from boycott, boycotting the White House Sinn Féin has just achieved, ju just taken over the position of First Minister in the north of Ireland. If Michelle O'Neill, the Sinn Féin First Minister, did not go to the White House 
refused to shake hands with Joe Biden on St. Patrick's Day, she would gain enormous credibility as somebody who is prepared to stand up for the Palestinian people, to stand up for Palestinian rights. Why is she not prepared to do that? Why is Mary, Mac Mary Lou MacDonald in Dublin, her, her, her colleague in Dublin, who's the leader of the largest party in Ireland, why is she not prepared to take a stand in support the, of Palestinians yeah. at a time when they are going through a genocide? David, uh, David, uh, I you know this, and but I want our viewers to know this, uh, and certainly as a Palestinian, uh, there is no country where where I feel and we feel more visceral uh, and heartfelt support than in Ireland and the Irish people. And I've spent quite a lot of time in Ireland. It's been a few years, but I've I've had a chance to spend a lot of time in Ireland, both uh, in the north and the south. And I can speak to that uh, love and solidarity directly. And we certainly feel it online as well. And uh, I can say that um, that uh, we've heard a great deal from people in Ireland, north and south, who want Sinn Féin to listen to Farah and other Palestinians in Ireland and stay away from the White House. My question, perhaps for both of you, is, is this strong popular solidarity and sentiment with Palestine translating into policy from the Irish government? Does the Irish government stand out among, say, countries in Europe in terms of its policies? We have seen a bit more criticism from the Irish government. Today, I believe, the Irish government, along with the government of Spain, released a letter calling on uh, the European Union to review its, uh, its relationship with Israel in light of the, the crimes that are going on. My question is, is Ireland doing enough? Could it be doing more? I, I don't know, perhaps maybe uh, Farah uh, would like to, to, to start, and I'd love to hear what you think, Dave. Um, no, I don't think the Irish government is, is doing near enough what it could be doing, um, especially in terms of um, okay, the beginning of the genocide from, from October. Um, uh, Michael Martin actually did a visit. He visited. Um, he visited uh, settlements. Um, did a whole propaganda um, photo shoot. Um, he he was essentially used as a propaganda tool um, that has that has fueled um, the the ongoing slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and I I really feel strongly that um, not only could the Irish government be doing more, but all kind of parties along the Irish political uh, spectrum could be doing a lot more. Dave, do you want to jump in? Sure. Yeah. Maybe just explain very, very, very briefly for, for people who people who who are not from, not from Ireland. Um, Sinn Fein is the largest party in Ireland at the moment. It's the lead government party in the north. However, it's in in opposition in the south of of, of Ireland. Ireland, of course, is a, a country that was partitioned by Britain just over a century ago. In the the Dublin government, it, it, I, I won't go into too much detail about this, but it's composed of two right-wing parties called Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, 
and the Green Party, which are which has become increasingly right wing in recent years. Just today, the Irish Taoiseach, the Prime Minister Leo Varadkar, sent a joint letter to the European Commission with uh, his Spanish counterpart, Pedro Sanchez. And in that letter, they called for a, an urgent review of the main contract between the European Union and Israel, which is called the Association Agreement. First of all, it's interesting that Leo Varadkar is using the word urgent because he has used the word urgent before in relation to Israel. In 2013, Leo Varadkar was actually Ireland's transport minister. And at that time, he argued that an, an aviation agreement between um, Ireland and Israel should come into effect as, quote unquote, a matter of urgency. So at that time, he felt that it was actually urgent to embrace Israel more than Ireland had done, to, that it was urgent to increase trade uh, relations with, with and economic relations with Israel. He seems to have, he seems to be taking a slightly different approach now, so that is welcome. However, is that is this really enough? In my opinion, it's not. The this agreement that I mentioned, uh, the association agreement between the European Union and Israel, came into effect in the year two thousand. So that's twenty four years ago now. Article two of that agreement says that the relations between the European Union and Israel are conditional on respect for human rights. Every single day since that agreement has come into effect, Israel has denied basic rights to the Palestinian people. Not only has the European Union refused to sanction Israel, it has actually hugged Israel tighter over those 24 years. Now, Leo Varadkar is only asking for an urgent review at this point. He has not specified what, what should happen if Israel is found to be in breach of that agreement. And in any way, in any, in any event, um, Leo Varadkar should be politically astute enough to know a little bit about the dynamics in Brussels. He's been here many times. Um, the, in all likelihood, it's, it, the countries such countries in the European Union, such as Hungary, such as Poland, such as Germany, such as the Czech Republic, will block any sanctions against Israel. They've always done so. They did so very, very recently when an effort was made to have sanctions introduced against only four extreme, so-called extreme settlers, Israeli settlers, um, that was blocked by Pol Pol that, that initiative was blocked by Poland and Hungary, if memory serves me correct. Um, so the likelihood that the European Union is going to sanction Israel is extremely, extremely small at this point. So what, what Ireland really needs to do, it can do this, and perhaps it can do this uh, together with Spain, is to take steps on its own against Israel to introduce trade sanctions against Israel. The, the record, unfortunately, of Leo Varadkar and his party called Fine Gael is terrible in this. They're, they've actually, one of the most anti-democratic things that Leo Varadkar and his party have ever done, I, and this is uh, talking about all, all, all in all policy areas, not, not just with regards to, to Palestine, um, is a few years ago, 
the Irish Parliament, the Oireachtas, both houses in the Oireachtas voted by a significant majority to ban goods from Israel's settlements. Even though that was approved by both houses in the Oireachtas, it was actually vetoed by Leo Varadkar and his party that in, a, in, a, in an extremely anti-democratic way. So what, what I would call, if Leo Varadkar or anybody else from his party are listening tonight, what I would say to them is stop blocking that initiative, ban. Your, the, that, that legislation has already been approved by both houses in, your par, in, in the Irish parliament. You can take measures tomorrow to ban goods from Israel's settlements. And there are other things you can do, perhaps in consultation with like-minded countries like uh, Spain and Belgium, which seem to be saying similar things to Ireland. We know, we know that the European Union is not going to introduce sanctions against Israel anytime soon. We know that the European Union has supported this genocide in Gaza. Um, and the, the, lady, the lady to whom that letter uh, was addressed, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, has said that she fully supports Israel's war against Gaza. We know there's, there's, no, she, there's no point in putting any hope in her. It's necessary for Ireland and perhaps to take action on its own, perhaps in consultation with, in, in tandem with, with, with Spain and perhaps in partnership with, with, countries, with other countries like Belgium. Yeah, um, Farah, I've got a, a question for you about uh, the Palestinian Authority. I mean, I found it really interesting at the beginning of that clip how you made a point of criticising, uh, and brave actually, how you made the point of criticising the Palestinian Authority's Irish representative who was speaking on stage that night, uh, Jilan Abdul-Majid. And could you talk about the PA's role in all this? Because um, I also I... I didn't know that what you mentioned earlier about um, one of Sinn Féin's leaders uh, going to speak to Hossam Zamlot, the PA's representative in London. And, um, you know, Hossam Zamlot is, is, is very embedded in the, it has to be said, he's very embedded in the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Britain. Um, and, it, you know, it, to me, in my view, this is a real problem that the British Palestine Solidarity Movement has, is it has this... I mean, the best thing you could say about it is, is it's a kind of rose-tinted view of the Palestinian Authority that it's, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's Palestinian at the end of the day. Um, but you made the point of saying, look, they're, they're not, <laughs> you know, they're and really the Palestinian Authority is part of the Israeli occupation, that that is its role. Um, and we do get just Asa, if I can add to the question, and we do get I get this sometimes because uh, you know I, I I won't say criticize, I say I describe the Palestinian Authority's role. And yeah. sometimes I'll get I'll get uh, people saying to me, Oh, you know, you shouldn't focus on this now. It's divisive. We should all be having a united front. So I hear that and I I'd I'd love to know what Farah thinks of your question, Asa. Yeah, so um, we decided to address first and foremost um, the the ambassador being obviously a mouthpiece of the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority, you know, like I said in the clip, you know, haven't had an election since two thousand and six. Um, they're brazenly corrupt. Um, they they embezzle public funds. They 
um, you know, they are subcon they're subcontractors of the of the illegal um, Israeli occupation, and um, they work hand in hand with with Israel. When we talk about the Palestinian Authority and Israel, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, and even just a few weeks ago, um, we saw um, Israeli soldiers disguised as Palestinians invading a hospital in Janine. Um, and uh, and opening uh, and murdering Palestinian victims, Palestinian patients, um, whilst in hospital beds, and th this is you know results of um, PA and Israeli security coordination, um, and bringing uh, any PA mouthpiece to sorry, an just, event. Sorry, just can I might... just add in? Sorry, Farah, can I just uh, butt into just uh, point out that what you're saying there is is completely true because it is in people don't real a lot of people maybe in the West don't realize this. It is in the job description of the Palestinian Authority, um, police, security forces, undercover officers, all of their armed forces. It is in their job description. They have to coordinate with the Israeli occupation forces. And when the Israeli occupation forces enters an area like Janine, like a refugee camp, like Ramallah, they have to withdraw and coordinate with the Israeli occupation forces. That is part of their job role ever since they were founded. No, 100%. Um, and uh, for Sinn Féin to give a platform for uh, the Palestinian Authority, who, you know, are another arm of, of Israel, um, they might as well invite, you know, Netanyahu or invite someone else uh, complicit in this genocide because the PA is equally as complicit. Um, the Palestinian Authority, um, and and to the answer of what you said, um, the what you had mentioned, uh, Ali, the, um, to keep... Um, you know, one of the biggest responses from that video is from non-Palestinians telling me as a Palestinian, um, you should be unified right now. The PA aren't the focus. They're exactly the focus because they're equally complicit in this genocide. This genocide would not be happening on this scale without Palestinian Authority security coordination. Um, and uh, I felt it very, very important to, to mention because it often does get overlooked. Um, and they obviously work hand in hand in, in oppressing Palestinians. Well, we're going to leave it right there. Um, thank you so much, Farah Kutaini and uh, our colleague, David Cronin. Farah, um, we hope you'll keep us up to date with all of your activism. I know that uh, you won't be stopping anytime soon. And thank you for that. Um, and uh, I encourage our viewers and listeners to follow Key48's work on Instagram. It's at Key, K-E-Y, 48 return that's at key 48 return on instagram uh farah where else can uh, our viewers and listeners find your work i know you write for the new arab as well um it's mainly just on key 48 return and, and the new arab for now thank you excellent thank you so much farah and david cronin our wonderful esteemed colleague thank you for all the work that you constantly do um and uh, i'm i'm glad that uh that you finally made it on. We, we were able to lure you on to the EI live stream. So we'll have you back very soon. Thanks, Thank Farah and David. Thanks Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And this is the Electronic Intifada live stream for February 14th. Um, on February 9th, Columbia University hosted a high profile event headlined by Hillary Clinton entitled quote, preventing and addressing conflict-related sexual violence. One of the speakers was Jeffrey Gettleman, the lead author of a major New York Times story published in December, purporting to corroborate Israel's discredited claims of mass rape on October 7th. Uh, Ali, you watched the entire event. I'm so sorry you had to do that. Uh, talk to us about what happened. What was that event? 
Yeah, well, right from the start, there were protests. So why don't we just start by taking a look at this clip of Karen Yarhimilo introducing the event, then we'll take it from there. Far too often, rape and other forms of gender-based violence are used as a weapon of war and as a tactic of terrorism in conflicts all around the world. And I am going to ask you to please sit down. I am going to ask you to please sit down because you are interrupting and you're interrupting an event. You are interrupting an, ev an event that is a public procession. I will now ask the, if you can please sit down, if you can please sit down and we can have this discussion. And now you are not discussing. Can you, the delegates will now, based on university regulations, will have to escort the first. Wow. Yeah. So that, that was uh, Karen Yarhimilo, and she is the Dean of Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, which co-sponsored this event along with the Georgetown University Institute for Women and Women, Peace and Security. By the way, just to give you a sense of what an objective, uh, academic and safe environment this is, Yarhimilo was actually a former Israeli military intelligence officer before becoming the dean of SIPA at Columbia. And it's important to note that despite uh, her constant claims that this was an academic proceeding, there was actually no genuine public or student participation in what I would call a propaganda event. For example, there was no opportunity to ask questions or challenge speakers from the floor, and they even turned comments off on the YouTube live stream. So they really wanted to control the message but the students showed real courage in speaking up um, and protesting and really preventing them from using this uh, event as a platform for propaganda. All right. And uh, Hillary Clinton, who was the star attraction for this event, uh, also received a similar welcome from the students in the audience. Yeah, let's, let's take a look at some of that. Thank you very much. That's my you name. Are That's a right. War criminal. The people uh, of Libya, the people of Iraq, the people of Syria, uh, the people of Yemen, sir, the people sir, of Palestine, as well as the people of America, will never forgive you. Violating the university called of Rutter. I'm asking you to leave. The delegates will now escort you out of the building. You Thank you. Uh, can you, sir? Free, Sorry about Free Palestine! Yeah, that's right. Free, okay. Sorry. Free Palestine! Free! Free Palestine! <clears throat> free! Free Palestine! Free! Free Palestine! Okay. Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, Hillary must really have had many years of practicing that fixed smile yeah. which can smug, feel so very much. smug yeah, yeah. Um, and we can also see what all this looked like from uh, the audience members uh, as well and from particularly from members of the student activist group Columbia University apartheid divest who organized the protests and stood up one after the other and challenged Hillary 
on her hypocrisy and on how she has repeatedly weaponized claims of sexual violence to push American uh, foreign policy objectives. So here's one video that was uh, shot by an audience member. This is a violation of the university. Thank you very much. This is an academic proceeding, and you need to exit the space. Thank you very much. What are you doing? Everyone, please join me and walk out of this event. Thank you very much. Free, free Palestine! In front of us, and same concern for the victims of sexual violence as us, your students, sit here in front of you. Some of us have been the victims of sexual assault and rape by Israeli occupation soldiers, not to mention the hundreds and thousands of Palestinian women who have been victims of sexual assault and violence in Palestine. As this genocide unfolds, you and Hillary Clinton manufacture consent. Not turn away from what's going on across the world. If anybody is going to be up on that stage cares about women or peace or security, you wouldn't be standing by and watching and supporting it while the government was bombing 16,000 women and children in Gaza. You want to talk about Libya? You want to talk about rape? Hillary, how did you feel when Gaddafi was raped with a bayonet before being murdered by forces that you supported as Secretary of State? How do you feel about the women and children dying? Yeah, and then we have one more that I want to show you from the from these protests from the audience. Yeah. Shame? Are you not ashamed you're exploiting okay. sexual violence right, we're gonna, for your own we're political stop. game? You're not fooling anyone. You've done okay. this before. Yeah. You've exploited yeah. and weaponized yeah. sexual Why violence in Libya, so in Libya, to exploit sexual panelists. violence so in Libya so that you can justify U.S. militarization and instability in Libya. You're doing that again to justify genocide in Gaza. You're doing that to justify genocide in Gaza. If you were truly enraged, about sexual um, violence, you would be talking about the sexual violence in Palestine, the sexual violence that they endure uh, by the IMF daily. You should be enraged. You know, You're not the standards like that we follow here and uh, going forward. Yeah, wow. yeah, and, and you can you can hear at the end of that clip the young woman calling out to Hillary, "You're no feminist. You're a white supremacist." And then just one last clip from the protest. I, I love watching these so much, so indulge me. This is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She's cast vetoes on behalf of the Joe Biden administration, blocking calls for an immediate ceasefire in Israel's uh, genocide on Gaza. And she was uh, repeated, uh, interrupted repeatedly. And at one point, the event actually had to be suspended. So here's just a little clip of that over the border from Sudan and I heard from so many people who have said to me this is yet again a violation of the university rules of conduct you are interrupting an academic proceeding it is time for you to exit the space this is a violation of the university rules of conduct this is an academic proceeding and you need to exit the space
Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, those, those students are, are very brave and, and just the, the cravenness of, of the, you know, of this like vaunted Ivy league. Oh no, academic decorum. Um, when they're hosting war criminals and, and supporters of this genocide, uh, Ali, what impact did these protests have on the event? Well, according to Columbia University Apartheid Divest, the, the student activist group, nearly 100 students took part in the protests and then staged a mass walkout. We didn't necessarily show those clips in the order that happened, but when the walkout happened, very few people were actually left in the room for the rest of the event. And there were only a few dozen people watching online at the most. So from a propaganda standpoint for Israel, it was really kind of a flop. Yeah, I know. I I think uh, the 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 four of us at EI who were watching at the same time was about you know like a tenth of the entire yeah. audience. Um, have there been any repercussions for the students? Because uh, you know, as we know, as I've covered over the last twenty years, um, when students speak truth to power in universities, uh, they get uh, sanctioned or punished somehow. But w what do you know about what's happened to them? Yeah, well, following the walkout, according to the student activists, campus security attempted to illegally de detain students withholding their property, including medical devices. That's from Columbia University Apartheid Divest. The group said that one student uh, who prefers to remain anonymous due to fear of retaliation described how security knowingly withheld her doctor-prescribed inhaler as leverage to solicit information for potential disciplinary hearings. And that all really speaks to the climate of fear at Columbia University for Palestinian students and faculty and their supporters. Many say that uh, President Minush Shafiq has bent over backwards to appease relentless Israel lobby attacks, falsely claiming that the campus is rife with anti-Semitism. And the Israel lobby has been waging campaigns against students at professor and professors at Columbia University for years. Last month, for example, students holding a rally to protest the Israeli genocide in Gaza were attacked with a noxious chemical spray, allegedly by supporters of Israel. And this is being investigated by police. And just this week, the Education Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives sent a letter to Columbia University demanding documents for a literal McCarthyite witch hunt by members of Congress against the university, alleging that it is, quote, failing to protect Jewish students uh, from supposed anti-Semitism. The letter is full of smears and outlandish allegations against Columbia faculty. One of the many false examples of anti-Semitism cited in the letter is an article by Columbia professor uh, Joseph Meshad that he wrote for the Electronic Intifada about the events of October 7th. And Professor Meshad has been a particular target of these libelous smears by the Israel lobby now for uh, more than two decades. So it really does take courage to speak up and protest in this way at such a repressive university like Columbia, especially against someone as powerful and ruthless as Hillary Clinton, who has actually been rewarded by the university for her war crimes with a professorship there. So really hats off to these students. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, let's turn to some of what was said at the conference. Um, 
Jeffrey Gettleman of the New York Times was there. Of course, he's the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter who put together that big so-called uh, deep investigation alleging mass rapes by Hamas fighters on October 7th uh, without a shred of evidence, of course. Yeah, uh, he was the lead reporter on that fraudulent article. And viewers may remember that we debunked it here on this live stream back on uh, January 3rd. And we showed in detail how Gettleman relied on completely unreliable and inconsistent so-called eyewitnesses, as well as on the Israeli military and on Zaka, a Jewish extremist group that has repeatedly fabricated October 7th atrocity stories that have since been completely debunked, even in the Israeli press. So you will also recall that the family of Gal Abdush, an Israeli woman who Gettleman claimed was raped, repudiated his story. They actually said there was no evidence Gal Abdush had been raped, and they accused the New York Times of misleading and manipulating them, and that they had no idea that Gettleman was actually going to claim that Gal Abdush was raped. And then, as we reported on our live stream on January 31st, Gettleman's own colleagues at the New York Times have also spoken up against what they see as potentially another major journalistic fraud and scandal for their newspaper. That prompted the Times to scrap an episode of its flag flagship podcast, The Daily, which was going to be based on Gettleman's now discredited reporting. Was Gettleman challenged uh, and held accountable for all of this at the conference? No, not at all. Uh, he was actually treated as a conquering hero in a fawning interview by Sheryl Sandberg, the former Facebook executive and a staunch Zionist herself. Sandberg revealed during the session that she has just returned from Tel Aviv, where she is filming a documentary about the alleged mass rapes. She's making the documentary with an Israeli company called Kastina Communications. And the title of the film is Screams Before Silence, which is very similar to the headline of Gettleman's own fraudulent New York Times piece, Screams Without Words. Yes, shameful. Um, did, did Gettleman address any of the problems with his reporting at all? Not directly, but it was very clear to me that he knew he was being closely watched and listened to. So what he did was try to surreptitiously back away from some of his more categorical claims. Let's listen. To I, I stepped into Israel and I did some stories about hostages and pretty soon, I mean, maybe, I don't know, within the first few days of, of this attack, we were hearing reports of rape and mutilations of, of women. We heard it right away. And I don't, I, I, maybe people in this room remember those videos of the female soldiers being taken away and the body of that, that one woman, Shawnee Locke, in the back of a pickup truck, half naked. Right away, it just, it just there was obviously crimes against women uh, that happened. So because, uh, sadly, I have some experience doing this, I began looking to see what we could find out and I worked with two other colleagues, and we interviewed almost 200 people over the course of two months. And what we found 
I, I don't want to even use the word evidence because evidence is almost like a legal term that suggests you're trying to, to prove an allegation or prove a case in court. That's, that's not my role. Right. Um, we all have our roles, and, and my role is to, is to document, is to present information, is to give people a voice. And we found information along the entire chain of violence, so of, of sexual violence. So his role as a award-winning reporter is not to report evidence. His role is simply to relay information is what he's admitting to. Yeah, uh, incredible. I, I've never heard a journalist say something like this. In my understanding, and I, I, I never, never had any ambition to be a journalist, it just was something that needed to, needed to be done. Uh, <laughs> I understand that the job of a real journalist is to look at evidence and to look mm -hmm. for evidence and to evaluate its credibility. And, and what you do is uh, you say, you know, we looked at this and this is why we think this is credible and this is why we think it's not credible. That's the responsibility you have to your readers and, and viewers. And that's what we try to do at the Electronic Intifada. But that's apparently not what you do at the, the New York Times. But look at how he's trying to absolve himself of that responsibility and suggest that all he needs to do is just regurgitate whatever so-called information is handed to him. And if it turns out to be false, well, that's, uh, that's not his fault. And it's also interesting in that little clip, uh, and I believe in the rest of the, 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 the event, he never mentions Gal Abdush, who again was the central uh, victim or, or uh, presented as the central victim in his story. So it seems that he's no longer willing to publicly stand by that discredited story, but nor is he willing to actually take responsibility for his misreporting. But this is also his claim now that, oh, I don't look for evidence. I just, uh, you know, I just pass on information. Whatever comes in front of me, I pass it on, is not actually the approach he took in his December article. Remember that headline, Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. That is very specific and very definitive. And look at the subheading. I, and I quote, a Times investigation uncovered new details showing a pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality against women in the attacks on Israel, end quote. This is all presented as incontrovertible facts. It doesn't leave any room for doubt. And Gettleman's article uses the word evidence no fewer than 10 times and repeatedly claims that there's lots of it. Now he's changed his story. Of course, we know Gettleman in the New York Times would never take this laid-back approach with anything Palestinians say. There, everything needs to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and even then, they still won't believe Palestinians. To me, it's absolutely despicable that all this was presented to an audience with no challenge, and Sheryl Sandberg did not ask Gettleman about any of the problems that have been identified with his article by outlets, including the Electronic Intifada, Mondo Weiss, The Grey Zone, and The Intercept. Yeah, I mean, the entire event was just a self-congratulatory, you know, press conference, basically, um, for Israel. What do you think Gettleman's goal is right now? 
In my opinion, Gettleman knows he's committed a massive fraud and is trying to cover it up and save his reputation. I think he's motivated not by a mission to uncover the truth, uh, but uh, really just to spread atrocity propaganda on behalf of Israel. Uh, he is not, in my opinion, a journalist, but an information warrior in Israel's genocidal war. Ali, what can we take away from this? Well, in a sense, the event at Columbia was really a microcosm of the world we live in. It brought together representatives of the world's most powerful and corrupt forces. You have at the beginning there Karen Yarhi Milho, the former Israeli intelligence officer, controlling the event, policing everyone's speech, and ordering audience members to be thrown out. She represents the real role of elite universities in the West, which is not, as they claim, free and open academic inquiry, but rather gatekeeping and providing a veneer of academic credibility to the narratives and interests of the powerful. Then you have Hillary Clinton and Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, along with a number of other former government officials who are there, representing the U.S. imperial war machine and its completely unaccountable and immune ruling class. You have, as I mentioned, Sheryl Sandberg representing Silicon Valley and big capital and their cozy symbiotic relationship with government in order to censor and control what we can see and say. And then you have Jeffrey Gettleman representing the New York Times and the rest of the establishment media that serve as faithful stenographers for the propaganda narratives and the, and the powerful. And all these forces are scratching each other's backs, supporting each other's agendas, and helping cover up for one another. And finally, you have the students who I think represent us, the public, who are given absolutely no voice and no way to really challenge the powerful except through protest, literally shouting from the back of the room to stop an American armed genocide supported by everyone on, on, up on the stage. But in this case, those courageous protesters did an incredible job exposing this for the sham that it was, and for a few minutes at least, confronting Hillary Clinton and her uh, with her heinous crimes in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Palestine, something the New York Times and the rest of the semi-official media will never, ever do. Thank you so much, Ali, for that breakdown. Um, and uh, yeah, just, uh, just that, yeah, journalists um, patting themselves on the back for not providing any evidence. Is, is for committing something. fraud, patting committing themselves fraud. on the back for yeah. committing fraud. Yeah. Incredible. Um, thanks so much, Ali. And uh, we are now going to turn to our uh, resistance roundup with our good buddy, John Elmer. Hey, John. How's it going? Hi, guys. Hey, Hi. John. Good to see uh, everybody. Terrible times. Yeah. See everyone. Awful times. Um, and uh, but yet the the resistance is uh, is uh, still making making gains and um, facing the enemy with dignity and honor. What can you tell us about uh, what's what's happened the last week? Well, the Israelis um, are wrapping up their operation in Khan Yunis. Um, I don't know if we have the map that we can throw up uh, tomorrow for this, but um, yeah, just so we can see in the south there uh, in Khan Yunis, that's where uh, the Israeli operation uh, of the last really last six weeks they've been fighting 
uh, in Khan Yunus. Um, the Israelis have said that they've wrapped up that operation and um, like they say everywhere else that they dismantled and destroyed the Qassam brigades, which there's no evidence of uh, whatsoever. But the Israelis are drawing down their forces as if that's the case. They've drawn down their forces now in Gaza by 70% um, to what it was in early January. So the nature of the fighting has changed. The nature of the targeting um, has changed because of that. Um, and so we'll see in these videos uh, this week um, a, a few different tactics, some much that we've seen before. Um, but uh, let's start... Um, well, we can just look at that map that we, we're, we're going to cover the territory while we have this map up. Um, you can see Gaza City there in the north. Um, Israel reinvaded um, Gaza City in the last uh, few weeks, um, going back into Gaza City and, as we know, um, re-besieging Shifa Hospital um, and carrying out more operations um, along the shoreline along the promenade in the downtown area of Gaza cities that we can see there on the map. Um, and of course, what we're, what's apparently we're on the precipice of is a major operation in Rafah, the last place um, that Israel hasn't destroyed entirely um, because it's where they told the million, the two million Palestinians, um, two plus million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to go. Um, and so people are living in tents in Rafah by the hundreds of thousands. Um, UNICEF said the other day that there was at least 600,000 children um, in Rafah alone. Um, so we're facing a crisis, um, a humanitarian disaster uh, looming over this operation in Rafah, which is what uh, the U.S. has tried to, uh, according to the State Department um, and the White House, Biden called it the other day, our operation in Rafa, which was at least um, somewhat honest. Um, but in the failings, apparently, of the ceasefire talks that we talked about last week, um, Israel said that uh, those and Joe Biden as well said that the um, Qassam demands were over the top. It's not clear which of their humanitarian asks um, Israel think is, thinks is over the top um, because they were very basic things that were asked for um, in the ceasefire agreement to move aid throughout the territory, um, to allow uh, civil defense uh, crews to work in the north to um, un undo people that are buried in the rubble, thousands of people, um, more than 10,000 perhaps stuck under the rubble um, of their family homes throughout the Gaza Strip. Um, and so part of the ceasefire negotiations, um, the details that were in those negotiations were to deal with the humanitarian catastrophe. Um, they were to deal with the rest of the prisoner exchange that Israel didn't carry out um, in the first round of prisoner exchange pause, which is to exchange the civilians um, and to uh, open aid up to the Gaza Strip. And um, the Biden administration called that over the top. Um, so the pause agreement has apparently been put on the back burner. And now we're talking about um, an invasion of Rafah, where uh, more than a million, a million and a half Palestinians are living in tents. And it's also Rafah is the main aid distribution site. So the aid that's being the little aid that there is in Gaza, the food aid that's being distributed is being distributed through a network that exists in Rafah 
that doesn't exist elsewhere in the rest of the Gaza Strip. So we're on the precipice of a major humanitarian catastrophe, which 131 days into this feels very difficult to say that somehow this situation is getting worse. Um, but for the Palestinians in Gaza, um, it looks that way right now. Um, Netanyahu said that without attacking Rafa, that we lose the war. Um, and so we saw him down and we saw Israeli generals down um, on the border with Gaza talking to troops about how they are planning on going in and how this will be Israel touching all areas of the Gaza Strip, which is, of course, uh, what they mean is destroying it. We saw with satellite maps last week. Um, destruction in some areas that's virtually total in the north, especially. Um, and there has been bombing of Rafa throughout this war, even though Israel said it was the safe area. Rafa has been the target and there's been many strikes in Rafa. And of, over the last number of days, um, it's been a catastrophe in Rafa because of the population density and Israel's attacks, um, which they always begin with the airstrikes before they send their ground troops in. And the airstrikes are by far the most deadly part uh, of these operations. And so um, really looking, staring down the barrel of another um, catastrophe. Um, and again, with very little uh, military achievements, objectives uh, reached here by Israel um, carrying out these operations. Um, so again, a 70% drawdown in Israeli forces has changed considerably um, the way that the resistance looks. But let's start with number one, Tamara. This is um, Sarai al-Quds. This is the armed wing of Islamic Jihad. And we're watching here um, fighters in a unit moving through the walls um, in their neighborhood, moving out um, to attack a D9 armored bulldozer, um, which they've been attacking um, considerably of late, um, a possible switch in tactics from early on in the war when we saw them actually passing on the bulldozers in order to hit um, the troop carriers and tanks. Now it's possible that they believe that um, that the, the bulldozers are actually something that are in shorter supply than their armored vehicles. Um, so it's, again, most of these things we're going to have to talk to the fighters after the war ends to find out what these things are. We're trying to interpret them in real time. But um, what we're seeing in these in this first video of Sorrel Kuds fighting in Khan Yunus um, is the fighters moving um, purposefully through the city, clearly knowing exactly where they're going. They're natives to this town, um, and they're using that knowledge to stalk uh, Israeli bulldozers. So this is this we're seeing three sets of fighters attacking the same bulldozer here from from various different angles um, and moving through alleys, moving through the buildings um, in order to stay away from the Israeli drone activity, which is a constant for the Israeli military. And we'll watch here with audio here the second time through. We watch them go through these mouse holes in the wall, moving between buildings. Um, and you can hear here now um, the drone, the sound of the drone. That's the constant. That's the context for what these fighters are moving around. They're under surveillance constantly by drones, which are then sending information um, to uh, Israeli ground forces that are targeting or to air force. Uh, strikes. Uh, the Israelis are not going in and fighting face to face. We've seen that now uh, for 130 days. They don't get out of their vehicles uh, virtually at all. 
Um, and so we're watching them walk through walls to avoid drone fire, um, to, a dro to drone fire and drone surveillance. Um, and we can see in these Sarai Al-Quds videos, because they stay with the shot a little bit longer, um, we can watch the unit move purposefully and carefully um, through the town, which is something that um, the, 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 they've essentially mapped these towns. Um, Khan Yunus, in this case, we're watching right now in Western Khan Yunus, where there was a lot of fierce fighting that we showed uh, particularly last week on the show. And there you can see the bulldozer is hit um, multiple times on that one. Um, and we know that the Americans are flying drones uh, over this area, too. We know that they've been flying um, MQ-9 Reaper drones um, over the Gaza Strip as part of the uh, as part of the operation, they say, because uh, there's Americans involved in the uh, capture in the captives, um, that that gives them the uh, the ability to uh, have flyovers of Palestinian territory by American drones. So maybe we can go to the second one tomorrow. This is, um, again, another example, walking through walls. Um, the fighters are moving through uh, mouse holes in the walls. We're seeing mouse holes both in moving in through in individual houses, moving from house to house. Um, we're seeing them in alleyways, so moving from uh, area of the city to other area of the city. And here we see, again, um, soldiers in a window. The Israelis are still in the windows. Um, they believe that they're the ones watching. But of course, the Palestinian reconnaissance is superior. It's both their own neighborhood and they're watching constantly. They don't uh, have the drone and the, the technology that the Israelis do. Um, they're using um, their eyesight and their knowledge of the neighborhood. So now we have Israelis that believe they're safe in a building. And we're watching footage of Palestinian uh, RPG fire from right across the street. Um, and we can see in contrast to the Israelis up in the window, moving the window, uh, hanging curtains, um, doing very obvious things in the window. Even here, we see this RPG fire um, set up almost like a sniper. He's set up away from the window. Um, the blast of the RPG happens inside the house, not outside, so that the, the flare isn't seen. Um, and they're just moving so purposefully that we see through these alleyways. Um, these Islamic Jihad videos from this week really gave us, I think, the best sense that we've gotten so far in the war of just how well they're able to move. Um, we've watched them in this video for the listening audience. We've watched them uh, move through the town, move through the city of Khan Yunis in order to get literally right across the street um, from the Israeli position. Um, and we're seeing these types of attacks improve. Um, we saw earlier they would fire from the windows. Now we're seeing the RPG fire move back from the windows. And this is, again, something that's happening all throughout the Gaza Strip, is that fighters are learning on um, their the lessons learned from the battle that they're bringing back to their bases um, and clearly communicating. And, and the, the, the nature of the attacks, the qualitative nature of the attacks, um, has improved. So we're seeing here three RPG fire on the same um, Israeli um, position within a building. And again, no Israeli casualty reports uh, from this fighting in, in Khan Yunus. We know from Israeli social media um, that they talked about uh, um, a very, uh, what was the word, distressing incident that happened with at least 10 to 14 casualties in a complex ambush carried out by the Qassam Brigades. 
Um, Israeli numbers had it at 14. The Qassam numbers put it at 10. And interesting just to note, the Qassam brigades um, in their daily, they now put out their daily wrap up on their web page. And in that daily wrap up, they use the Israeli numbers that the Israelis have admitted to for casualties. They're not throwing out separate numbers, um, although they are saying the numbers are are significantly higher, which is something that um, the Northern Front has said as well, that the casualties are clearly significantly higher than what Israel is admitting to. Um, but still, in their field reports, um, the Palestinians are not uh, using numbers outside of the Israelis at this point, um, which is something interesting to note. They've, uh, I pointed it out last week, um, just the, um, the accuracy of their field reports. They're not exaggerating. Um, the Israelis field reports um, routinely talk about hundreds and hundreds of fighters killed, um, which we have seen no evidence for uh, at all whatsoever. And again, one last thing on these, we're seeing elevated shooting positions. Um, so the Palestinians have have concertedly used the, uh, the infrastructure of the city um, to fire down on um, Israeli vehicles where they're more vulnerable rather than attacking from the ground level. And that's something that we've seen um, developing throughout the war. So in the reinvasion of Gaza City, um, we've seen a number of sniper attacks um, that have taken place that are um, that have been with the Al Ghul sniper rifle, sniper rifle, a 50 caliber material. John, just one, one quick question before you move on to that. To, to that, just regarding the videos we just saw, um, you said that the Hamas and the Qassam and the Sarayal Quds fighters are learning, and we see that in the video. The Israelis still haven't found a way to tell each other about windows. They don't. They still don't. It's unclear yeah. what's going on with the Israelis and their windows. Um, yeah. We did note last week that the um, the IDF has increased its training. Um, they passed a bill increasing the amount of time that fighters uh, train before they join their units. They've extended um, the uh, initial conscription period. Um, so it's possible that they're looking at that. In terms yeah, I think they'll need to include a, a six-month-long segment on uh, staying away from Windows. The Windows, the Windows stuff, Ali, is just—it's really remarkable. I don't have anything good to say about it. I don't know why this is still happening for the Israelis, um, but we're seeing significant casualties of Israelis in Windows. And again, those casualties are not reported in order to keep the morale of the Israeli forces up. Um, it's clear that although they still, it's worth noting, even though they're lying about their casualties, there's been 600 soldiers killed since October 7th. Um, and Yedio Aronaut reported just the other day that there's been 13,000 uh, hospital visits um, since October 7th, too. So it's clear, and we've reported on this throughout the war, um, that the numbers, none of their numbers add up. The Israelis just feted last week um, one, of their, uh, uh, one of their arms, um, their divisions that moves, um, that moves forces around on the ground have moved more than 1,500 medevacs which is separate from their unit, um, Unit 669, which is a, an Air Force unit that's claimed more than 1,500 medevacs as well. So again, we're talking about more medevacs um, just during the ground war than Israel counts in their statistics. So it doesn't make any sense on any level. You can't take any of the, the statistics that they give 
um, and, and try to, um, you know, reverse engineer to understand what the other casualties would be, which is something that you can do in Western medicine um, very well. And of course, because of the Americans fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, battlefield medicine um, is something that's very well understood after the, you know, 10 years of American wars um, and the casualties that their forces experience. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not clear why they're still in windows and it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they go about, um, rolling out their actual casualty figures, because, um, in the end, it's unclear why as a state you would want to hide, um, your fighters who were killed in war. Most states honor them, um, as war heroes. Um, you know, Hezbollah in the North announces their, their deaths immediately. And Nasrallah was saying the other day that, they actually have the funerals for their fighters in the south, in South Lebanon, in the area that Israel, um, you know, doesn't want Hezbollah to be in, and the reason why nobody in the north of Israel will go back home. So, it, so Hezbollah is having their funerals right under the nose of Israeli forces, um, and the Israeli forces are clearly telling. Um, I mean, they're clearly telling the families. I don't think their families don't know where their kids are. Um, I think they're telling their families and we, we know from, um, from some information that's leaked out that the families are just asked not to talk about it. Um, they don't have big celebratory, um, funerals. They, they only have some of those funerals and we've seen those, um, not go well when Israeli politicians and generals show up at those funerals. We've, um, they've been yelled at by, um, the families of the soldiers, by families of the captives who want their families to come home, who want a prisoner exchange deal that Israel um, seems unable to or uninterested in bringing home uh, its people. So, um, yeah, so in Gaza City, when Israel reinvaded Gaza City, we started to see these Al Ghul sniper attacks, um, the Palestinian um, resistance has brought out the sniper rifles in a way that we didn't see earlier in the war when there was more armored vehicles um, in in um, operations and not dismounted, which we talked about um, for months as well. The Israelis don't get out of their vehicles, um, which didn't make the sniper rifles as useful um, as we're starting to see now. But maybe we can go to um, to number three tomorrow here. This is in um, this is in the Al Ramal neighborhood, and 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 Layla talked about on this on the show uh, the other day um, what they've done to the downtown of Gaza. Um, so we're watching here a sniper with a rangefinder. We're watching Israeli dismounted soldiers walking amid just total ruins of what used to be the downtown core of Gaza, um, the beating heart of Gaza, where you, you have the commercial center, um, you know, you, it's the beachfront promenade, you have all the government ministries, Shifa Hospital, uh, the Legislative Council, it's the downtown public heart uh, of the Gaza Strip. And you're watching two soldiers here overseeing a bulldozer um, bulldozing what used to be massive civilian towers. Um, and again, we're going to, just to keep this show online, you're going to have to use your imagination what happened in the next scenes, but they're direct hits. Um, maybe this is a, t a chance to say these full videos are on my Twitter feed unedited, but we are trying to uh, skate around the YouTubes here and keep these shows online by making uh, wise edits. Um, and in this, in the dialogue in this scene, um, you can hear um, the, the you can hear them talking to each other. And the spotter says, "Here they come!" As they walk in, and the and the 
And the shooter says, wait a second, let's be patient. Let's wait for them to feel comfortable, which is what you see there, them feeling comfortable. And the next scenes is the, the Israeli on the right uh, is hit. Um, Israel last week admitted to um, one of the sniper victims, um, but they haven't admitted to these sniper victims killed in the north. Um, and so you can see with the Al Ghul sniper rifle that there's a range. You can see here the, the shooter is using a range finder there to find, to get the proper distance, um, the exact distance to get the uh, topography of the land. And then he's moving to his sniper rifle, which has a range, an effective range of uh, more than a kilometer, um, um, a maximum range of two kilometers. Um, so with the size of the Gaza Strip, that puts most of these soldiers um, in uh, range of the Al Ghul sniper rifle. And Kassam has shown this rifle being developed. It's it's a copy of an American of an Austrian rifle um, that the Iranians broke down and into component parts. And Palestinians have several of the original rifles, uh, but then they're manufacturing um, the parts for the additional rifles, which is something that the Palestinian resistance has done with all of these weapons. Um, and so you can see again, whatever the opposite of soldiers in a window is this Palestinian snipers on a mattress. He's at the back of the room. Um, he's completely away. His muzzle is inside the window. So the muzzle flash doesn't show outside the window. And what we're seeing, of course, I guess they don't put their misses um, on the videos, but on the videos that we've seen, these sniper hits are dead shots. They are perfect shots. They're not um, glancing blows that we've seen. So they're, they're clearly as skilled with the Al Ghul rifle as they are um, with the Yassin. And again, uh, we're John, one, one uh, question I have about this video and about the part that we're not showing, which is the, the, the hit, but you actually see a flash uh, when, when it hits, is it, is it an exploding bullet? They have, they have several types of rounds, but those rounds penetrate the armor plating of um, the um, flak jackets of these soldiers. So you're probably seeing that. Um, but there's, there's several different types of rounds that, mm. they, that they produce. But yeah, the flash, yeah. Uh, the one on that one, I believe the flash you're seeing, is it, is it penetrating? Because um, just the, the amount of plating. energy that is released is heat. Yeah, well, we'll see in yeah. this next video, um, if you want to pull up the next video tomorrow, we can see the round um, in his hand there, which, um, you know, roughly the size of an Expo marker, maybe we could say. It's it's a significantly large round. Um, it's twice the size of a dollar bill stacked on top of itself. Um, and so you can see his, the snipers holding that round um, here, and he's, drink, he's having a drink. He's in a position where he can sit back from the window um, and relax. And if we just play the video, um, Tamara, he says uh, here, he says this one, he says, this operation, God willing, is dedicated to the resistance in Yemen, to the resistance in Lebanon, to the resistance in Iraq. And then we show what they show us here of the clumsy Israelis smashing out a loophole for their sniper. And you can see through there, what we're looking at is we can see the range finder that the Israeli is using, that we just watched the Palestinians use. And we're watching here the opposite of that. We hear, see on the sniper shot there, he's got his scope covered right until the moment that he's going to shoot. 
so that he doesn't reflect the way that that Israeli sniper is reflecting. So this is sniper on sniper, um, and that uh, plume of smoke that you use that comes up there after the shot is fired is again something that you can use as your imagination. Um, so we're seeing the the tactically. Um, the Palestinian resistance um, tactically, and this is another sniper shot uh, of dismounted troops. But if we just pause it there, Tamara, you can see there his his the flash of his. Well, you can you can see in this, yeah, his flash, um, the the uh, reflection off of his rangefinder, which is a mistake for him as a sniper that apparently cost him his life. And if we look when we loop back around the video, we'll see the Palestinian sniper has a, a cover over what can flash for him. Um, and so he's sitting here very nonchalant. You can see he's got his position set up um, and he dedicates this because the Palestinians are clearly aware of what's happening on all fronts while the Israelis are saying their communications are cut off between the north and the south. It's clearly not true. Uh, it's not cut off even between the outside world because they're very aware of the resistance happening. Um, elsewhere. So you can see that's two loopholes poked in the wall by the Israelis um, and see how he's got his scope covered there by a t-shirt. And now watch when they flip back, the t-shirt will be gone and he fires. So we're seeing um, tactical supremacy um, from the Palestinian resistance and using the Al Ghul sniper rifle. And the Al Ghul, uh, Adnan Al Ghul is the founder of the uh, Hamas weapons industry. He was the one who said, we need to have uh, an indigenous weapons industry to produce not the most special weapons, but to produce the most usable um, and repeatable weapons and get those in the hands of all the fighters rather than having a few specialized units that can do this, um, to do this on a mass scale. And we can see there in this shot, maybe if we pause, nice, that's nicely done. Um, we can see their Jeep destroyed there, um, which is something that because the fighters aren't lingering on the site. We haven't seen as much destroyed um, vehicle, as many destroyed vehicles, um, but we can clearly see there that that Jeep did not do well. And just to say again, what Layla said, what we're looking at right there, that pile of sand and rebar um, and dirt, that used to be the most densely populated area of the Gaza Strip, the, the seat of public life, the promenade along the beach, it's completely erased. It's completely gone. The entire neighborhood, um, you know, the neighborhood that Layla knows, just completely gone. And it's the same for me. This is the neighborhood that I lived in. Um, the buildings that I lived in in my time in Gaza, they're all gone. And my very, very limited time uh, compared to people who live in Gaza, you can imagine just um, the, the, the level of devastation that people are trying to absorb that's happened in the Gaza Strip. This photo is is this is this would be where literally where the postcard of the Gaza Strip, where the drone photo of how beautiful Gaza is on the Mediterranean coast, um, and the Israelis have just completely destroyed it. And there you see dismounted soldiers um, out of their vehicles um, getting hit by snipers. And John, just I want to highlight one comment somebody made that I I just think is is so uh, perceptive, in that in one of those. Uh, sniper videos that we were just talking about and i think this is cut out uh when the soldier on the right is hit uh his buddy on the left immediately runs away runs for his life 
while his comrade is injured or, or likely killed. Uh, and just what a contrast that is with Dr. Amir Al-Asuli, who Nora mentioned at the beginning, who ran into the face of Israeli yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't know you had. I don't want to spoil it. You then. just. It's okay. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. So no, actually, because we cut off uh, the videos at the sniper shots, we don't actually see what you and the commenter just described, which is that the Israelis run. Um, they literally stepped over that guy's body, um, and they're not running for cover to then um, take up a shooting position. They're just running. Um, and each of the three main sniper videos that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, that we've seen the same thing. Just they don't even try to pull him out of the way. Um, they just leave him. And they're not taking up a position right beside him trying to um, cover for him so that someone can get him out. Um, they're just clearly fleeing, um, fleeing the scene. And we'll show that video uh, that you talked about after. So stay tuned for that. Um, uh, yeah, so now we'll go. Um, this week also, uh, Kassam released some information about the Yassin, which is the um, RPG that we've talked about uh, on this show every single time because it's the most used weapon. They've used it 1,100 times um, against Israeli vehicles. Um, and, and they've talked about, um, they, they produced this week sort of a tribute to the Yassin, and they talked about um, its development and the development between um the, from the lessons learned of the 2014 war um, when they had the RPGs and because of the um, improvements of Israeli armor, um, those RPGs weren't working um, as well during the 2014 war. In the 2014 war, um, the Palestinians used Cornet anti-tank missiles, um, wire-guided anti-tank missiles that are a bit more cumbersome. You have to set them up on a tripod um, and the shooter has to be in position to fire and then track the shot. Um, and so while they were somewhat effective with that weapon, um, they were cumbersome and they were deadly for Palestinian forces. And so the um, 2014 war um, informed the engineering units of the Qassam brigades who set about solving this problem of having a light infantry weapon, anti-tank weapon, um, that could be in the hands of all of their fighters. And they talk about in this tribute to them, um, to the Yassin, how they um, spent the time both um, in research and development on how to make exact replicas um, of the RPG-7 that um, that the Russians were using with the tandem warheads, um, that they set about the research and development in the years 2015, 16, 17, and 18. And also while they were um, getting the specs and everything um, uh, locked in on the engineering side, uh, on the fighter side, they were training their fighters um, with these weapons. And they talk about something that we've talked about on the show too, where we showed um, the footage of um, miniature uh, replicas, both miniature replicas, um, but even full-size replicas of Israeli uh, armored vehicles um, that Palestinians were training on for years and years before um, Operation Al-Aqsa flood on October 7th using this weapon. And of course, since October 7th and on October 7th, the Yassin was um, you know, was the primary weapon, and it has been um, for this entire war. And when history looks back on this war, um, it'll be what historians focus in on. Um, and so they gave a, a, a history of that, and they juxtaposed it with the $6 million uh, 
um, tank that the Israelis uh, are so proud of, the Merkava tank, um, that costs $6 million, $3 million in armor, um, a million for its cannon and aiming systems, and then $2 million in uh, technology that's attached um, to this. And the Kassam Brigades say that over the entire process of research and development and weapons production of the Yassin, that each Yassin um, comes out at less than $500. Um, and we're seeing them disable um, these tanks. So maybe we can go to um, number uh, five, sorry, tomorrow, number five. Um, this is Qassam um, fighting in, in Gaza City. We're seeing, again, elevated firing positions. Um, and now we're starting to see multiple shots um, taken from um, taken at the same target from the same place. So here we're seeing him pick up a Yassin um, with a tandem 85 warhead, which is what they're using against bulldozers. It's smaller than the 105 um, of the Yassin because there's slat armor um, on the bulldozers. So this is a more effective weapon. And now for the second shot, we're seeing them use a fragmentation warhead. So also, so on top of designing the weapon um, and making an exact replica uh, of the weapon, they've also made the warheads, um, various warheads that are used in different circumstances. See, we're here, uh, we're seeing it here be used against bulldozers. Um, and you can see there's a tank on the left of the shot there. This is the Kassam Brigades, Hamas's armed wing. Um, and you can see he's aiming at the bulldozer, not at the tank. So earlier in the war, we saw them aiming at the tank and not the bulldozer. Um, so we'll have to find out more uh, about that. But uh, Israel is, they keep everything secret, but they keep the number of uh, armored bulldozers that they have a secret. It's not even in the, uh, the military balance, which is the main uh, order of battle um, uh, journal. Um, that keeps these kind of numbers. They don't have, they have numbers for everything else, at least estimates. They don't even have estimates for the number of D9 bulldozers that um, that we've seen. Um, the Kassam Brigades say they've, they've targeted 85 of them so far in the war. Um, and so it's not clear how many of those are taken out of battle completely. We've definitely seen a number that are taken out of battle. Um, but again, this is in... Um, this is fighting in um, Tel El Hawa. So this is downtown Gaza City. This is from last week when Israeli forces were still in um, Gaza City. Um, and so this is the Qassam Brigades operating in the north where Israel said that they were eliminated. Um, so Israel didn't eliminate the Qassam Brigades as a fighting force. They didn't eliminate Hamas as a governing force. Um, they haven't eliminated the municipal services because the first thing that happened when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza City was uh, municipal civil servant workers um, and healthcare workers going back and restoring uh, Shifa Hospital immediately. The police um, are back and Israel bragged about targeting the police. Um, they said last week that they destroyed every police station uh, in the north of Gaza. So destroying the capacity for civilian life to carry on normally after, um, not um, saying that they're targeting Hamas, saying that they're targeting the police force. And they've been targeting these police forces, of course, in the south as well. We've seen it with their aid shipments. Um, they've targeted the forces that are, are, are carrying those aid shipments, um, targeting the escort right after. So Israel allows the aid across the border 
and then targets the people who pick up the aid on the other side of the border. We've seen um, really terrible things happening, of course, throughout this war, um, so just sort of sadistic things that, that have no military purpose um, and are just killing and destruction. Um, so maybe we could do number six now tomorrow because um, this is a shot here that we're seeing of the Kassam Brigades showing um, an IDF tank towing another tank that's been destroyed by a Yassin. Um, and you can see they're putting the little uh, triangle there on the rope that's holding, that's pulling the one vehicle uh, behind the other vehicle because it's been disabled. And again, just look at that shot, that footage. That's downtown Gaza City. That's where the heart of the universities, um, that's where the, the, the downtown core of Gaza City is just completely, um, completely destroyed. And maybe we could do the next one, um, A, with the Israelis um, uh, tomorrow, zero A, showing the Israelis. Oh, actually, hold on. This is, uh, this is, yeah, okay, perfect. So here we have the Israelis shooting at a, at a, at a berm, um, but then we're watching here. And what the Israelis said uh, about this video is they said, during the advancement of soldiers in the northern area of the Gaza Strip, an officer in the battalion was severely injured after an anti-tank missile hit a tank. The quick arrival of the evacuation company allowed the battalion's doctors to provide him with life-saving first aid and field coordinated in the field and coordinated his aerial evacuation in cooperation with the Israeli Air Force control unit to a hospital. So there's Israel showing casualties from a Yassin, um, from a Yassin strike and describing it um, and showing it to us, the um, the effort that goes into um, to these evacuations. Uh, medevacs that we know that there's been um, thousands, literally thousands of these medevacs. And if you just see this, you can see where he's shooting. He's shooting into that berm where there's nobody there. You can see it just, you can see where the bullets hit. So they're just, they just have these propaganda videos where they just spray bullets. I mean, we've talked about it lots before, and I think you've seen it on social media, um, but there they are attacking a, a sand berm. Um, well, the sand berm is Hamas. Uh, okay, so can we, um, yeah, can we do number, uh, um, sorry, uh, eight, yeah, 8A, or 0A, sorry, tomorrow, the Sarail Quds uh, battling, because here we see a Namur troop carrier, this is Islamic Jihad, a Namur troop carrier with a population of 12 soldiers in it, flying an Israeli flag. I don't know. Is that so that the Israelis don't friendly fire each other so that they know that that's their troop carrier and not Hamas's troop carrier? Unclear. But there's the troop carrier with the flag burning. Um, so the Namur is burning. So there's there's various different um, types of uh, outcomes that a lot of people have asked about the outcomes. What is what's happening after these Yassins are hitting? Um, and then this is um, some footage of Sarail Kuds um, after when firing on the um, extraction of that vehicle. And we can see this 60 millimeter mortar is something that's a useful tool in the urban environment because um, it fires in a like a parabolic, like an upside down U. Um, and, and so you can fire from one block safely over the buildings to the next block where the soldiers are. Um, are gathered. 
So just wanted to show uh, that footage. And just um, to switch from, from Gaza, we, I, I just brought a couple of clips again from the resistance in the other front, uh, on the other fronts. Um, so we have a, a video from Hezbollah that we've been following Hezbollah's use of this new weapon that they have, a top attack anti-tank missile um, that can be fired and then controlled while it's in flight from a separate location. Um, it can um, be controlled while the shooters can then move themselves out um, and get away safely. Um, but then the missile is controlled while it's in air and it can raise its height and then it can attack down onto a concealed target. So if we show number eight here um, tomorrow, we show this is the third video that Hezbollah has shown um, of this Almas Iranian um, anti-tank guided missile that the Israelis um, had in 2006 before anybody else. Um, and they had a unit captured by um, Hezbollah in the war, in the July war. So what we're watching here is the missile, and you can see how it's coming from above. And that tank that we're looking at, that's a Merkava 4, um, hidden behind a, a high berm, behind a wall, behind two buildings. Um, but they can drive the missile in flight over top of that concealed area um, and hit and hit the vehicle. This weapon is a qualitative increase in the capacity of the resistance. And should the fighting in the north increase, it'll be something that we see more and more of. But that tank previously um, was unhittable unless you were lucky and you fluked out and hit and your rocket landed in that exact spot. But this capability, this Almas um, anti-tank guided missile, um, for Hezbollah to have it in their in their um, in their quiver um, is a considerable upgrade. And after we watch this, um, watch this missile hit one more time, we're watching um, again, the tank is is concealed. Um, and so you're watching a, a strike from across the border hit a concealed target who believes that he is safe in that spot. Um, and then it's it's being hit from above. So we're really seeing we, we showed the first two videos of that. And I was talking about how they were hitting surveillance technology, um, but that they could hit tanks. Um, and then a couple of days later, Hezbollah showed us um, hitting the tanks. And after this, this strike tomorrow if we can show the article from 2006 um, so this is a report from 2006 after the war that says israeli this is on israeli state-owned television um, it says israeli military sources that said that the ground forces command has determined that hezbollah seized the spike anti-tank guided missile system the sources said hezbollah captured the israeli system during the war in lebanon in the summer of 2006 this is an article from november of 2006 um, and the IDF source says, we know that one of the spike systems has gone missing in the area where Hezbollah operated. Um, and the spike system was then, uh, the Israeli media military commentator said, it obviously went to Iran. Um, so that was 2006. Here we are, 2024. Um, and that uh, has come to pass uh, for the Israelis. Um, so that's the Northern Front. Um, again, we should do a whole show on the Northern Front because um, so much is happening um, on the North. Um, constant escalation um, and, and tactical achievements by Hezbollah um, and Israel uh, sti sticking largely within the, the rules of engagement in the North, not 
uh, escalating. Uh, Nasrallah pointed out the other day that, um, that that's proof of Hezbollah deterrence because previously these kind of attacks that we've watched on these videos um, would lead Israel to, um, to, to bomb uh, civilian areas um, in their Dahia doctrine as a response to these types of attacks, which we uh, haven't seen. So let's just go to the West Bank now. Um, because again, in the West Bank, there's constant resistance in the West Bank that would be called an intifada at any other time. There's armed struggle in eight different sites throughout the West Bank. Um, Israel's carrying out massive raids, um, just brutal roundup raids, 7,000 arrests in the West Bank, doubling the prison population, more than doubling the prison population, collecting um, collecting bargaining chips for this prisoner exchange um, and just arresting um, obviously innocent people all throughout the West Bank. 7,000 arrests, 4,000 people killed, or 400 people killed since the October 7th um, attacks and Israel not reporting their casualties uh, in the West Bank. So we can maybe show number 10 here, um, tomorrow. This is the, the, Palestinian resistance in Janine. This is an Israeli Israeli jeep that we're watching um, hit an IED planted in the ground uh, at the entrance of the Janine camp, um, and we're watching um, the jeep um, on a patrol um, blow up in a way that cl clearly would have casualties, but no no casualties being reported by the Israelis um, in this, uh, incident in the West bank. And we've seen a number of these, um, again, everything just to, to reiterate to the audience, everything that we're showing you here has happened in the last, uh, in the last week. This is the resistance. Um, this is the way we get the news, um, uh, of what's happening on the ground. And we want to bring that part of it, um, to you. We, um, bring the political and the humanitarian, and we also want to bring the resistance component to it. And so we show the fighters all the time, um, uh, let's, let's show the video, um, that Ali was talking about, um, tomorrow because this, 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 um, do we have her name, Ali? I'm so, I didn't, I, I thought, Amira Dr. yeah, Dr. Amira Lasuli. Lasuli. This so, is, uh, February so these 9th. Are copper yeah. snipers outside of Nasser hospital that are shooting people that come in and out of the hospital. Um, and the, the man is shot um, uh, and, and he's right across the door from the emergency room. And people are saying, don't, don't go, don't go. And the doctor, she takes her jacket um, and legendarily passes her jacket, just says, forget it, hold my coat. And she just runs through the fire uh, in order to pick up this innocent person shot by a quadcopter outside of the hospital. So I, I wanted to show that and Nora I got into your uh, report uh, at the beginning. So I, I took it out, but um, it, I, you didn't fit it in. So I wanted to show this here because, um, you know, we say it all the time, but the resistance comes in all different forms. Um, and the Palestinians have been courageously carrying out without cameras, um, these kind of operations, uh, these kind of, um, it, just incredible bravery, um, and uh, and and and, the, and, the and you know, they they run towards you know the, the Israelis run away from a fight. They run away from fire. They run away from real warriors. <clears throat> These Palestinians. This doctor runs towards it, and the the uh, Palestinian Red Crescent Society workers who went to try to 
rescue Hind after her family had been murdered, the six-year-old girl whose family was murdered by Israel, and then they were murdered along with Hind, they did not uh, hesitate to run into danger. Hard to imagine this kind of courage uh, and just compare it with, as you've pointed out time and again, John, the sheer cowardice of what the Israelis do. They attack civilians from great distance and great height with powerful weapons. Uh, and just this, this amount of willingness to sacrifice for your own people to, it's just, it's, you, you could only stand in awe in front of it. And this, this kind, this, this is such cowardice to shoot people in the entrance and of a hospital. Um, there's footage from this. I mean, I, I think like we would get taken off the air for showing it because it's just carnage. Um, they're sniping people, and they and they do. The and, yeah. These quadcopters, these quadcopters, which are fitted with guns, yeah. and they use them. I'll tell you a story about the quadcopters, which I will which I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but uh, our dear friend Rifat, who was murdered on Rifat al-Ar'ir, who was murdered on December 6th, at a certain point, and this would have been um, in, I'd have to go back and look at his messages, but in late October, early November, uh, reported to me, he said, there are quadcopters, and this was when he was, Near, he, he was staying at a home near the Rantisi Hospital in Gaza. And this was at the point where the Rantisi Hospital, and the, uh, there's a whole medical complex there of several hospitals, were under attack. And this was before they, um, they went in, and they, you, you remember the famous incident where Daniel Hagari said, This, this is a list. And it was of of a this is a terror list, and uh, it was uh, a wall calendar. But uh, you know, before that, before that, uh, and Rifat uh, was reporting on this at the time. He said the quadcopter was just there in the vicinity of the hospital, just randomly shooting people. Yeah. And he actually sent me videos of the quadcopter. Uh, shooting and it and that particular video was shot down uh and you could see it fall out of the sky it was shot down by small arms fire and rifat wisely i think did not want to post the video publicly because uh, he was afraid it could reveal his location it showed clearly the buildings he he shot it out of a window uh from the apartment that that he would have been staying in and he didn't want to reveal his location. And I think he was even so concerned that uh, he actually deleted the videos because he was afraid that, that um, you know, the Israelis could somehow uh, get access to his phone or whatever it was. But, uh, and I, I, I regret I didn't save them. But th those, those videos, he said, were evidence of war crimes, of using the quadcopters, to terrorize people in and around in a, ho a hospital to force them out of the hospital. And that's exactly what we're seeing now with the NASA hospital, the same tactics. So the reason I'm making that connection is, uh, is just to show really that the, the, the evidence is this is systematic. It's oh, a yeah. strategy. Oh, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, this the hospitals not, are the target. Yeah, but it's it's not another. just it's yeah. not just rogue soldiers no. uh, or you know the quadcopter. This is their strategy. They yeah. use these flying robots to murder and terrorize people in and around hospitals. Yeah, uh, we're watching this footage. In, in the footage outside of these hospitals, there's bodies on the ground outside yeah. of the door of the hospital, and people can't get them into the ER, can't get the bodies um, because they're being shot at. They're being told to evacuate the hospital, and then they shoot them as they evacuate. They don't let anyone come into the hospital. Um, it's just it's just pure terror. There's no military purpose um, to this. Uh, any any proper military, if you were to say that the hospital was a target, um, there's ways of clearing the hospital that don't involve massacring innocent people who have nothing to do with what's going on, um, and then ultimately not even going to the hospital. They they they've one by one systematically destroyed and dismantled all of these hospitals. Um, and it's the first target that they do in, and they're doing it uh, uh, again now with Rafa talking about how they have to evacuate the hospitals in Rafa. Um, this has been a systemic uh, campaign and, and to show that video of the courage that it takes um, for everyday Palestinians to, um, and they're doing it constantly because you'll never see a video of a bombing in Palestine that doesn't have dozens of locals running to the scene um, digging with their hand, mm -hmm. with their bare hands, yeah. trying to get people out. Um, those are just the civilians. And then, of course, you have the civil defense people who are just total heroes going around trying to get people out under the most dangerous circumstances. Ali, you talked about the paramedics. I went around with the paramedics in previous wars, um, and they're just the most incredible people. The, the courage um, and the, just the dedication that they have to their job. Um, it, it's something that I, I wish we could do a whole show on the Red Crescent mm. paramedics because they're just the the best the best of us um, mm. are, are these people and and that's who Israel targets um, from the yes. from the safety of their uh, six million dollar uh, armored vehicles. Uh, it's just it's, it's depraved. It's depraved. Should we just, uh, I know that we're, we're getting close uh, to, to wrapping up, but should we just have a few minutes on the latest with the ceasefire talks? Yeah, so from what we know, um, the, the ceasefire talks were given broad approval by Shabak Mossad, uh, the CIA chief, um, the, Egyptian Mahab the Egyptian intelligence chief, um, and the Qatari prime minister, um, and the proposal was given from Qassam to them, um, which included this first, which included three stages, three 45 day stages, but it was really focused on stage one. Um, and stage one is the release of the civilians um, in exchange for a number of Palestinian prisoners and the and the opening of aid and the opening of civil defense capacity to give diggers um, and to let people go home to their houses um, uh, where they're going to live um, in tents um, on their own homes. Because the, there's a lot of talk about people being pushed into the Sinai. Um, Palestinians aren't going to be pushed into the Sinai. They're going to push their way back to their homes and they're going to pitch tents on top of the rubble of their homes, which you're going to see. And the homes that aren't completely destroyed, people are going to clean them up and live in them. Um, and the the uh, Netanyahu and, and Biden said that that was over the top, that that request was over the top. 
Um, and so it seems like the, the ceasefire talks have been put, I mean, they're still going, the talks are going consistently. Um, but, but the, the momentum that it seemed that they had, um, has, has been, um, drained a little bit from what, uh, from my reading of the situation, of course, we don't, we're not able to have independent readings of this because they're all based on uh, yeah. secret meetings that unless they release what they talked about in the meetings, um, we don't know. We know that one of the persons at the meeting said that one of the reasons why Palestinians uh, wanted a ceasefire was because um, the Israelis are killing all their families, um, which is, I think, proof uh, from somebody participating in those discussions um, that the war isn't targeting the resistance. The war is just so clearly targeting people's families um, and not targeting the resistance. But they're saying that that they're that this. The ceasefire talks were a hope, the pause. I mean, I don't even know if yeah. a ceasefire was on order, but a pause was what was necessary for um, the starvation situation for Palestinians. Um, and to have that pushed back um, in favor of an, an, uh, of an mechanized invasion of Rafa is horrifying. It, it is horrifying. And, and you'll remember that when we spoke about this last week, I, I think... At least I was somewhat skeptical that the gaps could be bridged because what uh, Hamas put forward in its response, and that was a response on behalf of all the resistance factions, was very reasonable and moderate and minimal. Uh, but a key point was a complete end to the war. And they didn't even state it that way. They, they had three uh, phases of 45 days each, which would lead to a permanent ceasefire if each of the different stages was fulfilled. And as you mentioned, Joe Biden called that over the top. Medicine is over the top. Uh, free access to food is over the top. Uh, not murdering babies is over the top. All this is over the top for um, Joe Biden and the Israelis. And then when you listen to the rhetoric that uh, uh, Secretary Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, uses, he talks about this and other American officials as a hostage deal. We're working on a hostage deal. So for the Americans and, of course, for the Israelis, or at least for the Americans, because I don't think the Israelis really care about the hostages, as they call them, the captives. But when Blinken calls it a hostage deal, it shows that his priority is not the people of Gaza, but uh, as Hamas's uh, spokespeople and leaders insist, they say we are not or we are not negotiating a deal over captives. We are negotiating a deal to end the war and bring an end to the genocide of our people and basic relief. And what they've said in the wake of the Israeli rejection of their proposal is we are not going to back down from our basic minimal conditions, which is the you know, the, the the most basic things anyone could ask. So I, I really think that uh, the, I, I do fear that those gaps were uh, uh, too difficult to bridge. But Hamas and the resistance haven't given up on the talks. They're willing to continue talking. And so in that, perhaps there's a little bit of, of hope. But the other thing that is very concerning is we see that, you know, the so-called Arab mediators, whether it's Egypt or, or Qatar or now 
not that he's a mediator, but Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, are putting the pressure on Hamas to accept whatever conditions uh, Israel uh, is 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 putting forward. Or at least that's how it appears. I don't have inside information, but I think when uh, a week or so ago the Qatari foreign minister announced or more than a week ago, announced the agreement in principle. Some described it as a, an effort to publicly pressure Hamas into accepting a less than ideal deal. Again, as you say, John, some of it is in the realm of speculation because we don't know and we're, we're getting accounts that are spun one way or the other. But... Um, it's still difficult to see how the Israelis can climb down from their tree without anything, anything. And we haven't we haven't talked about their so-called hostage rescue, which people are raising a lot of doubts about. But they're still searching for uh, an image of victory, and um, they don't seem to be willing to give up this genocide until they have that. And as we see from the resistance, I don't know that they're going to get it. No, they're not. They're not. The resistance isn't going to back down on these things. The, 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 what, I mean, maybe we can talk more about it next show, but if we will go through the items that the, uh, of the first stage of the ceasefire, there's absolutely nothing over the top about it. it if anything, it's the bare minimum uh, of humanitarian uh, aid that would come to the population, which is something that should be a core part of, of any war. Um, but for Israel, for whatever reason, they get to do things uh, completely differently, and the mm. Americans um, just join in on this. Even the the, the hostage, uh, uh, the the captives that were taken in the rescue um, raid, whether it happened or not, the we know that the the way the Israelis are spinning that story is that um, it only took them a few minutes to come in and um, and take out the guards and take um, their people back, um, but they they carried out a diversionary. Uh, attack on Rafa. So regardless of what happened with the, the rescue operation, we know that they carried out um, the diversionary bombing and they killed more than 100 people, uh, more than 100 Palestinians. Even if it happened the way they claim, which is highly, highly doubtful, it is two two captives rescued after four yeah. months. You know, yeah, I mean, and then and then if if they can say we're justified in killing 70 uh, Palestinian civilians to rescue two people, then Palestine, what, what, what does that say for what Palestinians would be entitled to do to Israelis uh, for for 75 years of, of genocidal uh, violence but if, if i can just and how say, many of the captives have they killed in the mass yeah I, I, you know, exactly exactly but I, I if i can just say what i think this leads us back to is that the only thing that is is going to change this uh this this equation is number one the resistance and steadfastness of palestinians on the ground which we've seen but uh, equal equally important to that is protest and resistance in the around the world from us especially living in the countries that are completely complicit in this genocide and we're starting to see movement last week we talked about how um the the major japanese firm uh itachu had severed its ties with elbit systems israel's biggest arms maker and this week 
another company, another major Japanese company, Nippon Aircraft Corporation, has done the same. Uh, we talked about how Belgium, Belgium's Wallonia region and Spain have suspended arms shipments to Israel. Also this week, a major victory in the Netherlands where a court there ruled that the Dutch government has, has within seven days to cease exporting spare parts for the American-made F-35 fighter jets that Israel uses. And this is particularly significant because the Netherlands is actually the regional service center for the F-35s. They're the main storage warehouse for the spare parts that um, the Netherlands sends to Israel. And as we talked about with Farah and David Sheen, we have this letter today from the uh, uh, governments in David Ireland. Cronin. David Cronin. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we, we have several Davids. So many David, Davids. Yeah, David Cronin and Farah Kutene. This letter from the Spanish and Irish governments calling for a review of um, the... Uh, the EU-Israel Association Agreement. Of course, David Cronin was skeptical about where that would lead. But the point I'm making is that all of this is the result of the continued and sustained public pressure, outrage, and protest. Remember, we, uh, we the people, are the conscience, are the uh, moral reservoir that is completely lacking in our governments and centers of, centers of power. So we have to remember, um, I was thinking today, you know, it's not a very festive time, but February 14th today is Valentine's Day. And I'm thinking of how in Gaza, uh, on Valentine's Day, we would so often see uh, people in Gaza putting together these Valentine's Day displays of love. It became kind of popular in Gaza um, that just, you know, people call it Eid al-Hub, the, the festival of love. And I think the biggest uh, act of love that we can continue to do uh, is to continue to protest, to continue to raise our voices. Uh, let that be our Valentine to Gaza, to continue to scream and shout in every way we can to end this genocide and hold the criminals accountable. Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, that is a great, a great um, and poignant way to to wrap up the show. But before we go, uh, Asa, let's look at some of the comments from our dedicated viewers yeah, and listeners. Um, loads of support, <clears throat> as always, uh, from all over the world. Um, no, I can do what you and the rest of the team do week in and week out. Your combined fortitude is much appreciated. Uh, thank you to that viewer. Um, people, there was lots of um, discussion about the island segment and uh, support for Farah. Uh, one viewer said that um, I didn't know that Sinn Féin was siding with the Palestinian Authority. Um, and we had one viewer saying, I will certainly send Shin Fren an email about this. I'm off from Ireland and something seems a bit off about it. Thank you, everybody, uh, for writing in. Um, of course, people appreciated uh, John's section. Uh, a question for John. Um, why don't you cover the DFLP or PFLP? I think we have had a PFLP video, right? 
Yeah, no, we, we we've had we've had them. Um, they're both yeah. uh, participating in the resistance um, consistently daily. Um, they're they're much smaller groups. Um, yeah. But uh, but all they're part of the the half a dozen other factions that um, that uh, have been part of a joint operations command that the resistance in Gaza has um, has going for it. So. Uh, yeah, no. Shout out to the PFLP and DFLP for sure. Yeah, that, we that get we do fight. get comments like this sometimes. I mean, I, we do cover them when they come out, but the fact is they are much smaller groups. So the Hamas and Islamic Jihad videos are far more uh, common. Um, but thank you for writing in. I always love John's principal material analysis of the resistance, um, and uh, much love to Electronic Intifada. And I want to end on this uh, one comment. Good night, fellow Amaleks. Um, this, this is. Be, I saw this uh, sign, a protest sign, uh, a similar protest sign at one of the protests I went to in London a little while ago. Uh, this is, of course, a reference to the some racist comment that was made by uh, Netanyahu, by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, making a, a, a reference to a biblical myth of um, genociding. Um, the people of uh, ancient uh, Palestine, uh, you know, one of the peoples who lived there, the Amaleks, you know, so people have started to adopt it as well. Yeah, maybe we are the jungle people, we are the Amaleks, um, and sort of re uh, what's the word? Re uh, reappropriate, yeah, yeah. reappropriating it. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you to everyone. Thank you so much, Asa. Uh, and please go to electronicintifada.net to read all of our latest content. Of course, as Ali always says, um, you know, if you have a uh, if you have a look at our front page, um, the majority of our uh, features these days are by our contributors in Gaza, who are um, bravely sending us their reports in under the most uh, just horrific circumstances. So please do go to our website, read our content, sign up for our email list at electronicintifada.net. Um, and be sure to like and subscribe to this YouTube channel. You can get notified of our next uh, live streams and other uh, standalone podcast segments that we've also been uh, been been doing recently. Uh, so please go to electronicintifada.net for all of that. Uh, thank you so much to Tamara Nassar behind the scenes, uh, our director and producer, Ali, John, and Asa, and everyone at the Electronic Intifada. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>